This episode of Recording Studio Rockstars is brought to you by OWC and Jay-Z Microphones. So get ready to rock. With my mix template, I'll bring in parallel compression and parallel saturation channels, distortion channels, any kind of like ambient, like verbs and maybe some delays. But normally a drum bus, a, a parallel, maybe two parallel channels, and then a verb. And those will just come in inactive and then I'll just kind of like pull them up and make them active as, as I feel like it's needed. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. This episode is sponsored by OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, your trusted source for memory and speed upgrades, DIY installs, and used Macs for your studio. Let OWC focus on keeping your studio Mac in killer condition so that you can focus on making great music. Why ditch your existing Mac when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and learn how you can supercharge your studio Mac, the speed to create, the capacity to dream. Now find out how awesome your studio can be at OWC. This episode is sponsored by Jay-Z Microphones with a unique golden drop capsule design. The Vintage Series V67 and V11 microphones offer Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a rich, warm sound to your studio with crisp clarity and detail that will make you wish that you had discovered these mics a whole lot sooner. Go to jayzmic.com or click the link in the show notes below and use the limited time coupon ROCKS Star right now to get 50% off their vintage series microphones. Hey, Rockstars, it's your host, Lid Sean. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars, bringing you into the studio to learn from recording professionals so that you can make your best record ever and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Nick Lobel, a Nashville producer, engineer, and songwriter who started out touring and recording with the Michigan-based rock band Monsters and Mannequins before moving to Nashville to pursue a career in music production. Following his studies at Belmont University and internships here at the Toy Box Studio at Station West in Ocean Way, Nashville, Lobel cut his teeth as an assistant to mix engineer Sean Moffat. In 2016, Lobel began working with songwriter-producer Tyler Johnson under Tyler's wing uh, Nick has worked with artist projects including Sam Smith, Megan Trainer, Harry Styles, Cam, and The Head and the Heart. Over the past year, Nick has been further honing his chops, producing and developing the artist Alec Bailey, whose debut EP has already amassed over 4 million streams. And when Nick was at Belmont, he was also an intern here, as I said, with me at the Toy Box Studio and was one of the best interns I've ever, ever had here at the studio which at this point I think it's been like maybe 30 or something like that. Wow. It's been a lot. We got to have you sign the intern wall of rock while oh, you're yeah, here. Because I don't think that happened yet. I, I got to. Yeah. So I'm super psyched to uh, talk to Nick um, and have him back here in the studio with us, find out what you've been up to for the past few years, learn more about what it takes to be a top assistant engineer. And um, 
work with producers like Sean and Tyler and just, just transition into producing your own stuff. Uh, Rockstars, I wanted to point out that Nick's also done a lot of cool stuff with me here at the studio. Um, he was part of Stereo Sessions when we were doing the live video series here at the studio. In fact, he's, he's on there as one of the people mixing the band Lines in the Sky when they, those guys were performing. And then Nick's also been down to Bonnaroo Hay Bale Studio with me. So we've done a bunch of stuff, dude. And helped launch podcasts, in fact. Yeah. So a lot, well, man. We've welcome back, dude. Together. Are you ready to dude, rock? Thanks for having me. Yeah, let's do it. All right. That was a cool. great, all-encompassing intro. All right, good, good, Very good. Now we know everything extensive. about you. Should we just wrap yeah. up the podcast? Let's do it, man. Yeah, I think that was great. <laughs> um, so welcome back to the studio, man. Um, you've been doing a lot of stuff, but... Give us a little bit more uh, about who you are in your own words. Just sort of briefly give us a little bit of your background. Like, how'd you get into music and recording in the first place? Sure. Well, I grew up listening to, um, I, I just kind of being immersed in a pretty eclectic blend of tunes. Like, my parents, they were listening to stuff like The Beatles, James Taylor, and then sort of like random musicals like Les Mis and um, a lot of like theatrical stuff too. So I got... Nice. Introduced to all that. And then uh, I'm the youngest sibling. So I have an older brother and he was um, around when I was like eight or nine. Um, the grunge scene was really starting to explode. Yeah, and Seattle. he was listening to Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Smashing Pumpkins were a huge influence. Um, and then my sister was listening to stuff like Radiohead and like Sonic Youth and this more like alternative rock scene. Nice. We just so, had uh, Dave... Hillis on the podcast and he talked all about recording Pearl. Oh, Pearl sweet. Nice. I'm a huge fan of his back productions. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, anyway, so very cool, man. So you grew up with an influence of cool music, which has always been curious to me. I was the older brother, so mm -hmm. I had to bring the music to my brother. And I, I don't know if I really did a great job of it, but, <laughs> you know, I feel like I knew yeah. kids when I was in seventh and eighth grade, you know, there were kids who knew all the lyrics to ACDC and I was like, AC who, what, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so I always figured it was probably pretty cool to have an older brother who was introducing you to a bunch of stuff. I mean, it changed my life. The, the pumpkins were such a big influence and the kind of the reason I started playing music, playing guitar was like, uh, you know, my brother showed me them. And then one of his friends knew a little bit of guitar and I think he taught me how to play, um, that just beginning intro lick to the song today. And this uh, was up in Michigan where you were growing up? This was actually back in Pennsylvania. So I was born and raised in Danville, Pennsylvania. And then my family moved to Michigan when I was like nine or 10. Okay, dig it. Um, yeah. But, you know, so you did the band thing and, and were playing. Was this sort of, did you do a chapter post high school before coming down to Nashville? Just yeah, doing the band thing? Definitely. I had... Um, Definitely took me a while to like find my path and the right lane. Um, not me, I man. I knew what I wanted to be like, since I was five yeah. years old. Yeah. No, not really. Just, I mean, I knew I, I always knew I wanted to do music. Um, it just took a little exploring to like find what, you know, what the right fit was. And not to say that I've like arrived, but I definitely am feeling like really good about where things are at and I could just yeah. continue as long as I continue to grow and like evolve and keep working on um, exciting projects, I can, I can keep doing this for years. You got your shit together, man. It's, it's cool oh, to see so. the stuff that you're doing. I now. don't know if I would go that far, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, you did the band thing post high school. Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. I mean, like, um, you know, cause I know there's some listeners who are 
trying to figure out what to do next and, you know, asking the question, do I go off to school? Do I go play in a band? Yeah. Well, I started playing in bands, um, in probably in like seventh grade, I think. And, uh, played in bands all through middle school and high school. Um, just playing garage rock basically. And, and like playing guitar and maybe doing a little bit of vocals here and there. Um, but really just getting a groundwork for how to collaborate with people and how to co-write songs and um, build arrangements and stuff. And it wasn't, I, I didn't necessarily like see it like that, but that was like the education of it was just like, oh, this is how you work collaboratively with people and like build music together. Um, did you actually finish high school and then make a decision like, I'm going to go be full-time in a band now for my next chapter? No, actually, I did go to college out of high school. I went to Columbia College in Chicago. Oh, that's a great I was spot. Doing yeah, a, I was doing their music composition program. And um, it was great, but at the time, I didn't have, like, my focus wasn't, it wasn't enough on school to justify being there. And, um, I didn't necessarily put together like how it was going to like connect with what I wanted to do. And I was also still writing songs with these, some of my buddies from high school and guys that I had played in bands with for years. And, uh, we were just sending stuff back and forth. They were still back in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And, um, eventually I just decided like, I am more inspired by this stuff that I'm writing um, just with some of my buddies from high school and, uh, decided to move back and pursue that. And so we did an EP and we toured and, um, through that process, I got way more into recording and production and mixing. Um, so you're really in Kalamazoo, felt, Michigan, which is also like, um, where the Kalamazoo amp company was, right? Yeah. And um, my buddy used to have a little of Gibson guitars. Yeah. Home yeah. Of Gibson guitars. Um, but was there sort of a studio or recording scene there or anything like that? Or was this at a stage where you, by having a computer, you were already exposed to things like logic and pro tools and, you know, recording on your own stuff. I was building up just a modest home studio setup and we were doing all that basically on our own. We had a friend, um, come and help record. And I think he was just using a PC with like Cubase on it. And, um, I learned enough from watching him to just be able to do some of it on my own. So if he didn't show up one day, I would just record guitar myself or I'd do drums or whatever and do a little bit of mixing. And then, um, started to just get more into like online training and article like magazines, like sound on sound and tape op and just really like reading and trying to immerse myself in as much as I could. You know, I've seen, um, you know, a variety of interns here at the studio and, and students and people coming up through this. And, um, and I've noticed that sometimes I'll see interns who have, um, you know, decided to go to school for recording because they are interested in music or they're not sure what they want to do, but it seems pretty cool. Or maybe they got to record one thing once over a Christmas break and it seemed kind of interesting. Yeah. And then um, I know for myself... I had been playing music and I had spent like, you know, six months playing in a band in Hong Kong, but you know, and saw a studio by the time I was like, I want to go to school to do this. 
and hearing your story too, and being reminded of that, you know, that the importance of, um, it's not that you have to play in a band before you decide you want to record records. Um, but potentially because you decided to go back to write music with people that you really enjoyed working with, it gave you that drive and that like passion for doing this stuff that that really pushed you through the whole process of learning and internships and, you know, finally arriving at where you're, where you're at now. Now yeah. I, I will also add that, um, you know, another guest on the show, Jamie Tate, for example, I remember he always talked about his story. Like he never played music and never played in bands. And I was struck right. when we went to school together, I'm like, how do you go into recording if you don't already, if you're not a musician first, um, which is an interesting question. What are your thoughts about, you know, musician first, then recording? Um, do you think that that is a, a benefit or maybe a liability when it comes to engineering and producing? I don't necessarily like, I, I don't, it can be a benefit and maybe it can be a liability. I guess I don't know the other side of it. I can't really speak to, I mean, I'm not a great player, so I can, I'm just enough, like just capable enough to like hammer out some block chords on piano. I can play guitar, like mediocre, you know? Yeah, so yeah. it's like, I don't think people are coming to me necessarily for like musicianship. I think it's more for taste and like, uh, just setting a vibe and, and like, I'm probably a better mixer than I am a musician. So I think that's part of the, maybe that's part of the charm of me, yeah. <laughs> me as a producer. It's like, I can make it sound pretty good, you know, like, yeah, you know what sounds right. Mm -hmm. Well, I think sometimes there's a benefit to uh, music first, because when you're engineering and producing records, it means that you have a real understanding of the music that's in it. Um, and then I guess the flip side is you also don't want to be an engineer producer who just wishes that they were up on stage the whole time, you know, where yeah, you're conflicted. That's something I will never have a, that problem because I don't really have any desire to like go and do a bunch of live performance stuff. But I, I think like the, I think it can definitely be a benefit. And, and even like coming up and playing in bands, it's like, I still have moments where I'm like, man, I wish I was wish I had really like taken the time to really like study piano right, or yeah, study yeah. drum because I would be just so much more efficient in this session that I'm in or I could just really like get this part down in 10 seconds rather than like taking 30 minutes to learn something. That does know? seem like a real theme. I've noticed that about myself too. Like I could have maybe cared less about learning how to read music for piano mm -hmm. when I was just in getting interested in music. But later... As a producer and engineer oh, in the yeah. studio, I'm like, man, I sure would love to know, you know, that that uh, more complex language for communicating music and, right. and all that. So, uh, yeah, that is that is a good bit of advice. It's like, you know, maybe rock stars consider what what deeper aspects of learning you might want to tap into now just because it's going to give you superpowers when you hit the studio later. Yeah. You know? Well, and. That the stuff that I was that I grew up listening to and and being really inspired by was very guitar driven, so that was the that was the motivation. I was like really into guitar um, and didn't and I kind of blew off piano for a while. Yeah, and and, and I mean back, I kind of wish that I had a more balanced approach because right. you can play if you know how to play piano, you can play basically any sound with virtual instruments, you know, yeah. like any, and it's pretty believable, like some of the string libraries and stuff that's out there. Um, if you're, if you're pretty good at piano, like you can make some pretty convincing, um, 
arrangements with like almost any sound. And it helps you communicate with musicians, which you'll be doing a lot of yeah. when you're in the studio, especially, well, engineering, but producing for sure. You know, you got to be mm -hmm. able to communicate whether a part should is right or should go lower or higher or whatever, you know? Totally. Um, I think one of the things that I remember discovering in the studio was the challenge of trying to come up with a harmony idea and then suggesting it to somebody and then realizing it's not even in their vocal range, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Um, well, all right, cool. So, uh, you know, one of the things I like to do on the podcast is ask our guests to kick it off with an inspirational quote. You got anything to get us psyched about hitting the studio? Yeah, man. I uh, actually stumbled on this Rick Rubin quote the other day. Um, and he's basically just saying, the quote is just sitting down to create is more difficult if you don't have a structured part of your schedule devoted to this, to like only this work. It's not like a super profound quote, but it just, it definitely rings true to me. Um, working from home a lot, probably like 40, 50% of the time I'm working at home and there's so many distractions and ways to, to yeah. divert your attention that if you don't have, you know, if you don't have a, a structured, like, this is the, this is the part of my day that I'm spending to go and mix records or make beats or write songs or whatever it is, like, it, there's just too many ways to get distracted and not do it. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, you know, on recent interviews, we were talking a lot about songwriting, and that applies to the songwriting process as well. You know, it's like, um, the, it, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish, um, whether it's creative or whether it's even, you know, prep work in the studio or whatever, dedicate some time to it and know that that's the assigned time for it. And a lot of our listeners, a lot of the rock stars are, are um, people who are also working during the week. And one of their biggest struggles is, I just can't find the time to get into the studio and keep working on my record. And I think that in those situations, even if it's for uh, pleasure and hobby and it's not your profession, just having that like, uh, you know, a sacred block of time that you're going to yeah. go hit the studio and create, go in there, do it, be done, you know, end it when it's over too. Don't, don't, don't overdo it. Cause then you'll be like, I can't do that again. You know, it's just as easy to work too late yeah. into the night as it is to like not work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, you can just as easily go too far with it. Uh, I might've done that before. Yeah. And then also if you're having a lot of fun, if you're in there for fun and oh, it's yeah. a Saturday night and you're drinking beer all night long and then Sunday's destroyed and you didn't mow the lawn, yeah. now you're going to start blaming the studio effort right. for not getting the lawn done. Um, so another good reason to like, you know, kind of block it all off. Although it sure is fun to stay up late on a Saturday night. Oh, yeah. Drink I mean, beer I and work on your record. <laughs> definitely have my share of like five, six a.m. nights working on working on tunes. Yeah. Usually that's in the early stages when something is really exciting and really new and, and you just don't want to leave the studio, you know. So it's that energy that sort of like keeps you there. Um, do you do more of that when you're working for other people on their projects or more of that when you're doing your own thing or you know, collaborating with an artist that you're producing yourself? A little bit of both because I, I still get excited about both. You know, if it's, uh, if it's an artist that I'm working with and um, we just wrote a tune together, they just brought in this tune and we're starting to like work up some production on it, that can be extremely inspiring, you know? But also sometimes it's just like me doing my own thing at home, making a beat or writing a song or something and, and like... If you are riding that wave of inspiration, you don't want to 
the last thing you want to do is like get off the wave. So yeah, totally. try to just like stay with it as long as you can. Well, tell us more about your studio. You know, you talk about working from home. What does your mm-hmm. studio look like? What does it feel like? Um, well, we, uh, my girlfriend and I own our house and we have a finished basement and it's basically just like a small mix room in my basement. Um, I've got, uh, just basic setup, a few guitars, a couple mics, and essentially most, mostly what I'm doing there is, is mixing. Um, it's set up with like pro acts and, uh, and some, some panels and absorbers and stuff. And the bulk of like production and like tracking work, I would say doesn't, doesn't really take place there, but it's great for mixing. Pretty great for songwriting. If we're just doing like a, if we're just mocking up like a demo on something. Um, yeah. Um, talk to us about Proax and talk to us about setting up your monitoring situation in a home studio environment where you're like, this sounds great to me, or you feel, feel pretty good about what you're hearing back. So the, um, I, I, uh, I follow Carl Tatz a little bit and I've just essentially used his, his like near field monitoring setup. I think he calls it like the null position ensemble or something like that. And it's easy to find, uh, like a very specific diagram on his website yeah, of exactly how to set up your monitors and the angles and how far the tweeters should be from each other. And then just like how far your the listening sh- position should be from the tweeters. Yeah. I think roughly, um, you know, again, you're right. You should reference that for the exact stuff. But it, if I was to remember it off the top of my head, I think it was like 67 and a half inches apart from tweeter to tweeter. That's exactly correct. That's exactly correct. <laughs> yes. All right. And then, um, you know, then you, the speakers are angled in so that they, the point at which they, those lines meet, you know, the direct coming out of the tweeter, if you drew a straight line, they would meet sort of behind your head. Yeah, like, it's like right behind your head. So you're... Yeah. There's something about 80, 18 inches too, and I don't remember what that is. I don't know if that's behind your head, 18 yeah. inches or something. I'm not sure. But um, yeah, so they meet behind your head. So it's like your ears are within that triangle. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then that gives you a really nice um, image and, and you get this focus. He calls it the phantom focus, which is you get this... Um, if you close your eyes, you hear the singer right in the center of the speakers, Yeah, you know, sort of floating there. And then, um, do you remember sort of moving your speakers away from the wall or closer to the wall to arrive at a, um, the right location for stuff? Well, definitely moving out of, uh, out of an apartment and into the house. Like my speakers just by the nature of my apartment that I, that I was in before were just like right up against the wall almost. And, um, now being in the house, there's just way more room. It's a pretty big room in the basement and, uh, they can be, they can be there probably like three or four feet out from the walls. Oh, okay, cool. Um, um, and then what about the stands? Is that important? The speaker stands? I need to upgrade my stands because one of them has a resonant, has a frequency, like a bass frequency. And it's like anytime bass or kick drum hits this particular note, it just like rattles. Oh no. So drives you nuts. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Um, so I'm looking into getting new stands, but, uh, definitely. It's an yeah. evolution, right? Yeah. Oh, always. It's a, you're always like sort of tweaking it and, and trying to take it to the next level. I haven't done my speakers in a while, but I'm, I'm pretty excited about switching from my NS10s to something new or maybe getting a second pair. At one point, um, 
Chad brought over, I think they were Pro X, and, and we actually just set them directly on top of my NS10s without mm -hmm. even moving my NS10s. Yeah. And um, he had a really nice amp. It was like called a Hot House or something. Mm -hmm. And and we plugged those in, and it was a remarkable. I was like, good Lord, these sound great. Yeah. Like, And I didn't even go through any positioning other than to just sit them right on top of the speakers I had. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe I can get a second pair and just like pop them right on top and set them up like that. Yeah, yeah maybe. I mean, you, your NS10s, I think, like are some of the best that I've heard. And I think it's also just like how they're set up in your room. Oh, well, thanks. Man. You know, obviously I've worked in a lot of studios that have NS10s, but something about the way that you've got them configured and probably like the placement in the room and everything, um, they make the most sense to me here. Right. Right. Uh, well, they, um, they do sound pretty good for NS10s. I think, uh, the, the amp is a Bryston 4B, which sounds really good. And yeah. the reason I got it was because when we worked with Tom Lord Algae at his studio, he was mixing on NS10s mm -hmm. with the Bryston 4B. Yeah. And then I saw one in a, you know, a used music store and I was like, okay, I'll get this, you know? Yeah. And then, I, and then I did get a subwoofer and then we, you know, did our best to shoot it out. Um, although I need to do that again, you know, I don't feel like yeah. much of an expert, but I did use um, recently, you know, of course I installed the Sonarworks reference Four software and that has been uh, very, very cool to work with. Oh, sweet. Um, that's something that I recommend to you or, or Rockstar's listening. It's software where, you know, you get a measurement mic and then you install the software and then there's like a, um, an installation wizard program that just takes you through and have, has you move the mic around and it, you know, sort of auto sends sounds through it and, and measures it with the mic. And it takes about 15 minutes or something like that. But after you've moved the mic around all the different listening position areas, then it comes up with a compensation frequency curve. So it measures the curve of your speakers and gives you like an alternate curve and sort of flattens out your response so that you're getting a closer to flat response on your speakers. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, the most transformative thing is the uh, is how much more clearly you can hear the bass. Wow. It's pretty cool. And did that take a while to get used to the new to that calibrated a little bit curve? but but my, like, one of the first things i did and, I, and i've put um a couple of videos about this on youtube is the um you know the, i took a rough mix where i totally failed with the bass and pulled that up and it was like oh no duh you know like i clearly would have heard that kick and that bass were way too loud oh, wow. right there and that to me yeah. was very helpful you know sweet um but anyway I digress. All right, so tell us more about your studio. You're you're working in Pro Tools, or do you use another DAW? I primarily live in Pro Tools and Ableton, and it kind of just depends on what I'm doing. If I, if I'm mixing, it's all in Pro Tools. Yeah. Um, but if I'm starting, if I'm like making a beat or starting production on something, I do like to use Ableton. It's just pretty like inspiring. But I've never finished a project in Ableton. Okay, so you get it to a certain point, and then how does it leave Ableton and go over to Pro Tools? Well, I'll just export stems. And is that something where you're like, you work up to a point, and now you stop in Ableton, export stems, and go to Pro Tools? Or do you sort of, do you find yourself bouncing back and forth a bunch more while you're continuing the project? Sometimes I'll bounce back into Ableton, but usually I try to get something to where I'm like, all right, this is kind of like enough of Ableton and let's bring this into Pro Tools and start yeah. tracking and really editing and starting to like mix and stuff. So Ableton is, it's it's okay to think about it as sort of a, a really fancy drum machine, beat making yeah, machine. Yeah, like I, that's the way that I kind of use it as like a a really 
powerful sequencer. Yeah, it's like you're one of your starting instruments yeah, for the track, right? Exactly. Um does Ableton still have the rewire function where it'll talk directly to Pro Tools and you have them both running at the same time? You can do that. I haven't done that in years. Um, I don't and I, there's a few like little quirks with that. Um, I haven't been able to get Ableton rewired into Pro Tools and use and still be able to use VSTs within Ableton. Interesting. So you can, okay. in other words, you can rewire it into Pro Tools and use the built-in like Ableton instruments and Ableton audio effects and stuff like that. But if you've got um, instrument chains with like other third-party plugins, those don't, they don't just don't pull up. So potentially you could be working in Pro Tools and then treat Ableton like it was an input to a stereo track and you're just creating your drum machine sounds there. Totally. And you just, you can yeah. still play a keyboard and MIDI control Ableton, but you're hearing everything through Pro Tools. Yes. Yeah. Um, does the latency get crazy when you mess with that stuff or is it, is it pretty uh, reasonable? It's more the, um, just bouncing back and forth between the two screens. If you don't have dual monitors and you have to just like keep going back and forth between the Ableton interface and Pro Tools interface, that gets a little confusing. And sometimes the, uh, and there maybe is just like a better way of doing this that I don't know, like having yeah, two computers explored, you in know? the studio, one off to yeah. the side that's just Ableton, right? You know, um, um, well, that's cool, man. Yeah, all right, there you go, rock stars. Get dual monitors, yeah, dual monitors would be helpful. And yeah, I think just being able to like fully sync them sometimes the playback doesn't sync exactly, um, as it should. So that's just like. I'll, I'll sometimes rewire Ableton, but most of the time I'm just printing those stems yeah. and bringing everything into Pro Tools and kind of working from there. Um, not that we have to go too far down this path, but any uh, little quirks or tricks you want to mention about exporting from Ableton? Any weirdnesses you run into that you always have to avoid with stereo versus mono or any of those kind of things? I mean, it doesn't always, they don't always sound the same. So you just have to be be cautious of that, you know, like oh, Ableton, Ableton and Pro Tools don't sound the same. So you got, what, ears, you've so got a sound in Ableton and by the time it goes into Pro Tools, it's, it might now be just a little bit different, but that's normal and you just got to compensate. I think it's just the algorithms. I think it's the way that like Ableton sounds. It has its own thing and sometimes it sounds really good and then sometimes Pro Tools sounds better. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can go to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level. And you can start right now with my free introduction to mixing course, Mix Master Bundle. This course will show you how to get pro-sounding mixes from your home studio with free and stock plugins and Pro Tools. And the best part is that these mixing techniques will work for you in any DAW, whether you are in Logic, Cubase, PreSonus Studio One, Reaper, or anything you can think of. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix masterbundle.com to get started for free now or look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode you have uh had a lot of cool experiences and i know that one of the first gigs you got right out of school and finishing the internship here was you became an assistant um talk mm -hmm. to us about that process what was uh what does that mean can you remember going from like you know, I need, I need a gig to, oh, I've got a gig. And, um, yeah. what did it mean to become an assistant? What kind of things would you do? So I had a really great mentor in, uh, a guy named John Mays and he was an A&R over at, uh, 
centricity music. They're like a contemporary Christian label. And he connected me with um, Sean Moffat, who's a mix engineer, like probably the top mix engineer in that genre, and is now starting to branch out more and doing like pop and country. Um, But anyway, John introduced me to Sean, and um, this was before I was... I was out of school. I I was still in school at the time. And I think I was still interning and, um, I just connected Sean and I just kind of like hit it off. And then a couple weeks later, I found out that he was looking for an additional assistant. He already had a go-to guy who'd been working for him for, I think at the time it had already been like three or four years. Um, and his assistant Warren was starting to transition to more like just doing his own mixing and doing his own engineering a little bit more and was looking for somebody to kind of supplement and help out with uh like picking up the slack um so we just I kind of like chatted with Warren and and learned like what all was entailed and and what they sort of needed to do um and then pretty quickly just jumped into like training to um to pick up that work. How steep is the learning curve for becoming an assistant to a mix engineer like that? Um, is there quite a lot to learn? There was definitely a lot to learn at the start, just because of all of the intricacies of Sean's setup and his workflow and just all of the specific like preferences Um, you know, just from the way that he would set up the session in Pro Tools to like how things have to be routed to his outboard gear and his like two bus compression and EQ and whatever else. Um, so learning the, like learning the basic template took, took a little bit on the front end, but then once I, once I had it down, like the, it was a very similar process on every session that came in. Right. It was designed to make things efficient and quick. Exactly. It's meant to expedite the workflow for Sean so he can open up a session and it's exactly where the producer last hit save. You know, it sounds, it recalls exactly to the rough mix and he can start from there. And then on the back end, the it's set up in such a way that like the, the initial um, mix prep is set up in a way that like all of the archiving and stems and printing different mix versions and everything else that might need to be done for like a label delivery is all pretty much in the session and ready to go. You just make those tracks active and you're good to like start printing. Stems well, fascinating. So, um, <clears throat> does this mean that a session can become more complex? So like if there were 24 tracks originally, by the time you get into this template, is it a lot more than 24 tracks that you're looking at on a screen? There's definitely additional tracks that come in as part of the template. And those would be like certain instrument buses, um, a two, like a mix bus, um, a print track, like a, usually I would print in the session, like out of the mix bus to another audio track. And then there's just hidden and like inactive a bunch of tr- a bunch of just audio tracks for stems and printing different mix versions, mm-hmm. like a vocal up, vocal down, acapellas. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So um, another question about that. Now that you've you've sort of transitioned from being Sean's assistant to other things, and now you're producing and mixing your own stuff. Mm-hmm. How many things? Um, 
not necessarily specifically, but like, do a lot of those kind of template things carry over into your own work and you've adopted 100%. them? A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, I use, even even I mean, things I like stems and stuff like that. exactly Sean's workflow when I'm mixing. Like Very it's, cool. It's pretty much the same sort of template. A few things adapted a little bit to my own um, setup and, and like preferences, but it's the same, like basically the same idea of just awesome. having all that stuff in the, te- in the prep and ready to go when you, when you're done mixing and need to like start printing archives and stuff. Okay, cool. Well, before we get into the, the nitty gritty of all that stuff, um, talk a little bit about, uh, the workflow of assistant, assisting, engineer what's what's yeah. the what are the goals uh, for somebody who's trying to understand this it sounds fascinating but they're like what does that mean you know well the goal would always just be for sean to have the quickest and easiest you know like he can pull up the session and and just feel inspired right away and not have to like figure out why something is routed a certain way or like what's going on with the track like i do all that ahead of time in the prep like so the producer would send send the session and I would get it first and just set it up for Sean and then pass it along to him and hopefully by the time he's opening the session it's all just like ready to rock um, how much time might it take for you to prep a session it just depends on the producer honestly like some tracks could take 15 20 minutes and others where it's like a more complicated setup or they have some pretty wild routing, um, might take a lot longer and tracks that are coming from a different DAW. Like there would be, there's a handful of producers, um, that work with Sean who work out of logic. And so they would send stems and then it was always a a slightly different process, more like importing all the audio and matching levels to the rough mix and matching panning and all that kind of stuff. Now I know in, in logic, that's an example of people when they export stuff, you get a bunch of stereo files, like everything's a stereo file. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit. Um, is that an issue? Is that not an issue? Uh, I've, I've seen stereo files come in and then listen to them and I'm like, that's just mono. Yeah. Turned into stereo and then I split it out and turn it back into a mono track. Is that part of the the process? That's the same thing that I would do if something was obviously mono and you can always, you can always check with like a flip phase on one side. Um, So I would do that and just, and just like make anything that was actually just mono. I just split it. Um, Okay. Here's a geeky question. How did you flip phase on one side? Um, If you do like a multi mono, uh, like just EQ one or something and just flip to just the left side For, as a plug in and pro yeah, tools. Yeah. Um, so you got you a stereo a, track, right. stereo audio file on a stereo track. Yeah. And you just pull up a multi mono plug in mm-hmm. and you, uh, you have to unlink it, I think, right? If you unlink left, right, then you, then anything you do to the, to one side doesn't affect the other. So you can essentially flip phase on just one side. And then, um, if it's mono, you it, it'll just cancel out. You pan um, both sides into the center. Yeah, you got to pan yeah. both. You got to yeah. if the if it's panned left and right, you got to pan it to the center first, yeah, right? Okay, exactly. cool. All right, there you go, rock stars. That's how you yeah. check phase and flip it to mono. <laughs> and then if it is mono, what do you do to that stereo track? Um, I think I just had a command, like a shortcut to split into mono, and then um, I would just delete one of the sides keep one and then make sure it was pan center. And just, I think the, 
usually the compensation EQ or uh, not EQ, but gain is like three dB. Like in other it's words, to match lower the level something. of the stereo track, if you're making a mono track from a stereo track, you have to you have to boost the mono track to to match the gain. Right, because before there was that mono track coming out of the left speaker and that mono track coming out of the right speaker. Yeah. And then when they add up at your ears, they're three dB louder. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, is there a, is it advisable to turn a stereo track into a mono track? Um, is it okay to just leave it as a stereo track and not even worry about it and just mix I mean, it's it from fine. There? It's not that it, it definitely say like if you're putting a lot of plugins on that track, it's going to, Save processing. Save processing. Also, it's kind of a hassle to stereo, or if it's stereo but it's really mono, you want to pan it somewhere. You now have right. to mess with two pannings. Yeah, and stuff. Okay, cool. Um, so the the flow of a project is from producer to you. Mm-hmm. You have to turn it into a session, and then it goes to um, whoever you're assisting that engineer. Um, bear in mind that some of our listeners might be looking at opportunities to um, assist people and do work for people through, you know, through the internet, through Upwork and Fiverr and, you know, crowdsourcing websites like that. Um, what, so then, then the uh, person you're assisting opens up the session. And again, maybe describe more of what happens from that point. Yeah. So Sean and I, we just shared a Dropbox folder and um, the whole time that I was assisting him, for probably like two and a half, three years. I maybe saw him like a dozen times, you know, over that time. So, so we, you might as well bet over did, the internet. Yeah. I mean, I did most of the, I did the, the bulk of the work remotely from home and which was nice for him. We had pretty much a cloned, at least pro tool setup. We had all the same plugins so I could open up sessions from almost any producer and, and like it recalls. Now, is that something where, um, you know, that becomes a consideration for somebody who wants to assist. It's like, yeah, I may have to buy a bunch of plugins that, you know, to get to work. I think it just depends. I mean, it de- if like, if you're working for somebody remotely like that, you on the front end, you can get by without having, without necessarily like having everything. But if you're, if you need to print stems and archives for like a mix engineer, you, you're definitely going to have to have all the same you're going to have to work on like a cloned rig. And if they're using any outboard gear, that's another consideration. You got to have all the same outboard okay, gear interesting. and even like converters, you know. Right. You may end up needing which the I same never, studio. Yeah, which is like <laughs> I, I never did any like archives from home because I just didn't have like, just Sean had some outboard gear that I didn't have. Let's break that down a little bit more for people who are like, what does that mean? Sure. So you send it to the mixer, he does the mix and then, um, what do you think, uh, how would you describe the time frame and the, the process of mixing? You know, does he mix it all the way until the very last thing is printed and delivered? Or is it like sit down for an hour, do the creative stuff, save and close the session. Now you come back and open it back up again and sort of do all the follow-up cleanup stuff? Well, I think for the most part, um, Sean, would, Sean would mix and hit tweaks. And then once it was approved... Um, either Warren or myself would print all the different versions. So just as, again, as part of the initial setup of the session, there was just all the, uh, all the tracks to print different mix versions. And, um, we would do that once the mix was like turned in and approved and everything. 
Okay. Does that answer it. your question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm just trying to help paint a picture for what a workflow like this looks like yeah. for people. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about um, what kind of stuff you want to teach the rock stars about a, a really smart mix template. Cool. Yeah. What, uh, where do you want to begin? What's what's a good place? What's one of the first things that you remember discovering about a mix template where you're like, oh, that's cool as shit? Um, anything well, in the parallel processing world or drums or anything like yeah, that? Yeah, I think that just having some things that you bring in that you kind of like know what they do and and the intention behind them. Um, you know, like as part of Sean's mix template, which... I then adopted and, and still use on everything that and I we're, mix. we're allowed to talk about it, right? Oh yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. I mean, Thanks, it's Sean. essentially my, Thanks, Nick. <laughs> at this point, um, you know, I just bring in like certain vocal effects that, that I use. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that things. there was uh, on your productions, uh, Alec Bailey and stuff, great yeah. vocal effects in there. Um, oh, what thanks, are man. some, you know, what do you want to say about some of your favorite vocal effects? What are things that you might bring in? You had some, beautiful lush reverbs. You had some really um, yeah. smart uses of sort of distortion. Yeah. There was one track, um, Lemonade, one of the tracks you produced. Mm -hmm. And and like the lyrics like Call You and For You have this like double distortion effect going on yeah. with the vocal and right. cool effects like that. Um, those are just, I mean, I, I bring in usually like a plate verb, a spring verb, um, maybe some kind of like lexicon, like hall verb. Um, and then, a uh, a, a handful of different like types of delays. Like sometimes the echo boy is on a lot of tracks. Um, I use like some of the, sometimes the CLA effects, like the waves CLA plugins. Interesting. The effects, um, one. Yeah. Where it's like, where it's it like you have the throw switch and distortion yeah. and then yeah, like, cool. um, uh, different delay lengths and some verb on there. And these would all be um, plugins living on Augs tracks that Usually, you sort yeah, of like, so import into the session? Template, like I'll bring all those in on, they're all on returns. And um, I would just put all the sends on all the vocal tracks and just um, usually make them inactive on background vocals. But on the lead vocal will always be like sending to those. Um, and then I'll just ride them up if I, if I want like a plate reverb in the chorus or something, I just ride it up there. Yeah. Um, so it's already sending from the lead in other words. All right. So, um, let me back up a little bit. If you start out with a pro tool session that comes from a producer, yeah, are you somehow adding your mix template to that existing session? Totally. And all the routing too. Like, so I will, uh, um, sort of conform the producer's session to, to work within the constraints of the, of the prep template. But that producer session template. might have a bunch of plugins. It might already have oh, yeah. some, some, um, you know, effects returns and stuff like that on right. tracks, right? Totally. And I would keep all that stuff. Um, I would essentially just add my, my plugins on there, add any like effects sends, so guitar tracks, I would put, I might put on like a guitar verb, just make a, put a send on there. And, um, there's a return that comes in with the template and it's just, it's just there if I need to add verb or delay or something to it. Now, guitar. what about the output of those tracks? Do the, do the tracks get rerouted yeah. somehow? Is so, there, is there a smart way, a right way to do that? Well, I split everything out 
usually at the bottom of the session, I'll have all of my instrument buses. So drums will all go to a bus. Um, any program loops, um, sound effects stuff goes to a bus. Bass has its own bus, guitars, um, synths, keyboards, and so on and so forth. Like everything is kind of like split out. And then on my rig, it all goes out to a summing mixer. Goes out to a, like a dangerous oh, external one. Okay. Yes. So it's um, sixteen channels of analog summing, and so each of those um, instrument buses at the bottom of the session gets uh, gets sent out to a stereo, like a physical output from Pro Tools. Okay. Now the choices that you make for what instrument groups to split out is that the point at which you're making a lot of those choices because those are also the stems that you'll want later. Totally. Yeah, I mean, it would be, I probably wouldn't split it out as much if those weren't, if those stems weren't needed at the end. Maybe like, explain what a stem is too for the rock stars. Well, stems would just be like just the drums on a, on a printed audio track, just the bass, um, you know, guitars. And is um, this bass stereo or mono? <laughs> Just depends. Usually, well, if it's like an if it's a mono bass, then this I would make the stem mono. Okay. Yeah. All right, take it. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, so you got things breaking into subgroups, which also equal the stems. Exactly. And then those yeah. go out to a summing mixer. Right. Um, do you always use an external summing mixer? Have you? Do you find it's uh, if you don't have an external summing mixer, can we just send this to an AUGS track? And just mix it digitally inside Pro Tools. Totally, or and there's thing. There are plugins that um, there are like analog summing modeling plugins. Um, so there's some of the Slate plugins do that stuff pretty well. And uh, there's there's uh, the NTS. I think Waves makes a plugin called NTS. That's that's sort of like doing the whole analog summing thing. Yeah. So um, I don't know. Are you using any of those at all? Before Sometimes. I had the, before I incorporated the actual before I put the dangerous in I was okay. Using Do you yeah. think you can kind of generally kind of break down the way that uh, those plugins get added to tracks so that we under we can visualize how the slate summing mixer works? Sure. At this stage. So as part of the they were just part of the template. So all those instrument buses at the bottom of the session, all those instrument returns, I would normally have like maybe the slate. Um, what is it called? The VCC virtual yeah console virtual collection console collection yeah. And then I would always have like a Pro Q, maybe like a compressor on there, maybe a limiter at the end of the chain, and then um, and then they're either routed out to the to the gear or just to the mix bus internally in Pro Tools. So each of the subgroups has the um, virtual console. Like it's the individual yeah. module on it, right? Yeah. And then totally. if those are all busing to a stereo mix bus, mm -hmm. then that one has the virtual console bus plugin on it or something, right? And don't you have to like group those with, with Slate or something where it's like they talk to each other somehow? I actually never really tried putting it on the on the mix bus. I would, okay, like it's just I would normally have like maybe on the individual or maybe like right. a tape plugin on the mix bus. Um, but just on the individual like instrument buses, like all the drums, all the bass, all the guitars, vocals, um, you can just inside the plugin, you can set if, if they're on a group, they'll all change together and right. you can change the input level and like the, 
saturation level on all of them at the same time. Okay, cool. So each module on each one of these subgroups just imparts the sound of a, a mixing console onto that yeah. subgroup. Yeah. Okay, cool. And I would sometimes, like, sometimes I would use the groups and then sometimes um, a certain, uh, like a Neve module might sound really great on bass, but then I use like maybe the API uh, model on drums or something like that. Okay, cool. So you can switch it up and just see what works, you know, see what sounds the best. All right, dig it. Well, let's take a break now for the jam session. Uh, Rockstar's a reminder, we'll have links to the stuff we're talking about here with Nick in the show notes. Just go through on your mobile device or go to rsrockstars.com to the website, and we'll be back in just a minute for the jam session to dig into some more of the details about these mixed templates and so, making yeah. great records. See you then. Are you using a Mac in your recording studio? Are you tired of feeling like the studio setup you worked so hard to create is becoming obsolete too quickly? Wouldn't it feel great to have a trusted friend to help you keep your existing Mac and studio setup current and relevant so that you can focus on the thing you love most, which is making great music? Well, now you can rely on OWC, Otherworld Computing, which you can find at OWC.com, whose mission it is to help you get the most mileage out of your existing Mac. Whether you need to upgrade your RAM install an SSD drive, add more connectivity, or simply find a great used Mac that's ready to rock, OWC will help take your studio far into the future with a vast library of DIY install videos, 24-7 friendly support, and free shipping in the U.S. on most items over $49. Why get frustrated and ditch your existing computer when you can take your studio far into the future with OWC? Learn more at OWC.com and find out how awesome your Mac can be at OWC. If you want to capture every nuance of a great performance in your studio, then you need to start with a microphone that is crafted with great care and attention to detail. Jay-Z Mics in Riga, Latvia designs amazing sounding microphones that are handcrafted with jeweler's precision to bring you incredible detail in your recordings. At the heart of Jay-Z Microphones is the unique Golden Drop capsule design, which uses a lighter, faster diaphragm that delivers great clarity and fidelity while avoiding distracting colorations and distortions. Make sure to check out the Vintage Series V67 and V11 with Class A discrete amplifier circuitry, extremely low self-noise, and advanced built-in shock mount technology to bring a classic, expensive vintage sound to your studio for an affordable price. Jay-Z offers a five-year warranty, free shipping to the U.S., and a 30-day money-back guarantee. Plus, for a limited time, you can use the coupon code ROCKSTAR to get 50% off their Vintage Series microphone. I got one. You're hearing my voice right now on the V67. Wouldn't it feel great to have one of these in your studio? Go to jzmike.com or click the link in the show notes below. Hey, Rockstars, we're back now for the jam session. Again, my guest is Nick Lobel, uh, not to be confused with Nick Lobel, which is how my iPhone Siri always <laughs> pronounces your name. That's how almost everybody pronounces it. You know, I, always, I had to learn how to go like, you know, uh, um, hey, Siri, you know, call Nick Lobble. Oh, I'm glad I didn't just kick my phone on just there. It probably would have done it. <laughs> um, we're going to dig into some more talk about uh, mixing and making great records. So you ready to jam, dude? Yeah, man. Let's Sweet, man. Great to have you here, man. Um, I love being here, bro. Let's break down your mix template a little bit more um, or okay. just stuff that's useful to know about when you're creating your own mix template. Um, let's begin with the drums. First of all, do you lay out 
your mix sort of top to bottom on the screen in sort of a consistent manner? Yeah, I would always have, um, I would always have it look pretty much the same so I can navigate really quickly. I just know, like I know drums are at the top and then if there's any like program drums or loops, um, that stuff is right below the drum bus and then bass and then guitars and then like keyboards, synths below that. Um, any kind of like orchestras, if there's like strings or brass or horns or anything like that would all be right below the synths and then vocals laid out just like lead vocal and then all the backgrounds and then gang vocals. So the very bottom track on a session might be like the last gang vocal that was done or something. Well, the bot, the lowest tracks are actually like the instrument buses and then the mix bus and then the mix print track. And then below that, just all the audio tracks for different mix versions and stems. Right. So the right. bottom most track is actually like a, a gang vocal stem track or something like that, or maybe vocal effects stem. Um, but the actual like audio tracks that are sent from the producer um, that come in with the session are, yeah, like gang vocals and, and like any vocal effects are usually towards the bottom. Right. And then, um, and right after that is sort of the uh, sub mix buses happening right there. These are there. all the sub, sub mix buses. Yeah. And then what about with the effects? When did the effects show up on, you know, visually? The, uh, oh, the, so vocal effects are right above the, uh, the submix buses right above the instrument. Okay, buses. so it's like vocals, then vocal effects. Yeah. What about effects for guitars or drums? Do they live up near the the submixes for those instruments? I usually keep them with those, um, like with those instrument tracks. Like if there's a guitar verb, I keep that up with the guitars. Any kind of like drum verb or delay or anything, I just keep up near the drums. Yeah, so that you know where it's you know where to yeah. find it. It's like near yeah. the drums. And those are always split out, um, like. They're, they're grouped to the corresponding bus at the bottom of the session. So if there's like a drum verb or if like the producer sends something and like snare is going to the same verb as like a vocal, I would always like split those out. So duplicate the return and set it up on its own send on its own bus. Okay. Cause that way you can uh, print them in separate stems later. Yeah, exactly. Okay, cool. It's just like helping that process a little bit. And then, you know, as much as it's like possible to keep, to recall to the rough, um, um, but, but still being able to like split things out and process them individually. All right. So let's back up to the top. So drums, um, and then you said drum bus, and then you said program drums. Mm -hmm. Is that because the drum bus is meant to be just for summing the drum kit together so that yeah. now that's sort of like one totally. good sound? Yeah. And then you might still sum the drum kit and those programs to get drums together in lit down further in the mix in the drum subgroup. Well, I would keep, so usually at the bottom, I have a drum subgroup and then like a loops slash sound effects subgroup. And, um, they get summed together through the gear, through the actual like summing mixer um, but they're still like separate in Pro Tools so that when you go to print stems, like I can print a, a drum kit stem separate from like programmed loops and sound effects. And so, you know, one possible useful f scenario for that is the band needs to do a, a live stage gig and they yeah. need all the program right. stuff to play through the PA, but the drummer's yeah. actually going to play live mm -hmm. for that gig, right? Okay. Yeah, that happens a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm yeah. sure all these details of what gets stemmed have evolved for very good reasons. You know, mm -hmm. it's like these are the things that actually are needed at some other point for a live performance, for a TV performance, for a right. a no vocal version of the song. Um, are the stems important as a remix tool where it's like we're gonna do we're gonna mix the song again now we're just taking eight stems and bringing up the level of one thing or is that not yeah. the way to think about this well the stems are definitely useful um in terms of remixes also just for like um if there's any kind of like edit to the song like that band lines they they do a lot of times their songs are like six seven minutes long so sometimes they'll do like a radio edit which just like a little more concise get it down to like three four right, minutes right. for radio you know and so, so um, i'll do those from the stems because uh if you, you could do it from the final mix but then it's tricky sometimes to get the edit to crossfade just right is that why the stems it's are more useful dealing with a lot more you could definitely just pull up the final mix session and make some of those edits it's just a lot more tracks that you have to like deal with you know Rather than like 12 stems, you're dealing with the whole session file. No, well, I guess what I meant by the final mix is just a stereo file. Why not just oh, edit the stereo file to turn so, it into a radio okay, mix? So maybe there's like vocal throws or delays that if you make an edit, that just cut off sort of randomly right, instead right. of like that stuff carrying over. Whereas the stems gives, lets you, you know... Let's the edit, edit those things individually. And, yeah, the edit can, for the uh, yeah. the crossfade for the edit happens here before the kick drum, but on right. the vocal track, it maybe happens a little later exactly. after you finish the line yeah. for some. For the, yeah. Okay, cool. So those are helpful to have for that kind of stuff. Okay, great. Um, I like that, man. Um, if you if you were recommending how somebody might start including all these stem tracks in there, um, well, first of all, let's describe what kind of routing you need to do to create stem tracks in your mix template. Mm -hmm. So you, so you have, um, let's, let's start with a, a visual of a simple band, you know, so it's, so it's not too complex as we describe this, but you've got, um, drums, bass, guitars, vocals, vocal effects separately or something like that. These yeah. are all the subgroups. Right. Okay. And then how did those turn into stems? How do they get routed? And we're not well, using an external mixer. We're just doing all this in the box in our Pro Tools. And I do that too. Like the stems that I print don't go, I don't route them through any outboard. They just get printed into the session from sends on those, on the returns, uh, basically on those sub mix buses, like the drum bus at the bottom, bass, guitar bus. I just have sends on those tracks um, that go to audio, like print tracks right below it. Okay. So all right. any all of the stems that that I do personally are are pre mix bus, so they don't have the mix bus EQ and compression, or if there's if there is anything on the mix bus, um, is is and it important? That is just it's more so I can recall the actual mix rather than trying to like get the stems to like roughly match the mix. You know what I mean? Like if I have stems that are pre pre like mix bus, I know that I can pull those stems in, into a session, pull in like the settings of the actual, of the mix bus on that session. And it will, it will like recall to the mix. And it will sound like the mix. It sounds yeah. exactly like the mix. Nice. Aside from any like random algorithm reverbs or something like that, it will like, it'll phase cancel the mix. Yeah. Right. You know? uh, speaking of random algorithm 
stuff. Uh, yeah, you know, like when you sometimes we use flangers and phasers and effects like that. Um, it can be uh, you discover that like every time you play the mix down, it yeah. phases and flanges differently different, because yeah. it's not like locked to the grid, right? You know, the sweeping sounds and stuff like that. Yeah. All right, dig it. So, um, as far as uh, what um, arriving at what things we want to create stems of. Any advice for us on that? I mean, should we just automatically break it down into some combinations of stuff? Like, what would you recommend? I mean, I think it just depends on what uh, what what the delivery requirements are, um, and if they even need stems. Like some some stuff, I don't I don't print stems because it just isn't like the artist doesn't ask for it, and it does take it takes a little while to do. Okay, you know, but most of the time, I will do that. I'll sometimes I'll do stems just for my own peace of mind. So I know that like if Pro Tools starts acting crazy or if like a plugin um, randomly expires and I can't find like a new installer for it, I still have the, the stems of that mix. Um, okay, all right. So then let's back up one step from there. The submixes of things. Um, do these submix things like drums, bass, guitars, do they sometimes have treatments on them, plugins on the submix that are like, yeah, you definitely. know, where all those instruments are compressing together or getting EQ'd a certain way? Yeah. And what are some important considerations about that? Do you, are there sometimes elements where you can't break them out and stem them because they need to hit that submix together? Um, yes, sometimes it would be like if you split out like something that's pretty common is like the the they might want lead guitars split out from rhythm guitars and then maybe there's also like ambient swelly like verbed out guitars or something so they might need all those things split out and um in the act in the mix template normally i would just have them all routed to that dr like a guitars um sub mix bus at the bottom so if i need to print stems of those things individually i would just duplicate that and make new make a new bus for each one of those so there'd be you'd end up with three guitar buses one for yeah, lead exactly. one for like rhythms one for swelling rhythm guitars and then like ambient guitar swells or whatever okay and so they wouldn't like they're not going to hit the if there was compression on that on the initial like all guitars bus it's not necessarily going to hit that the same way but you'll still get like the how the useful is compression. compression on the all guitars bus? It can be, I mean, it can help. Uh, sometimes I'll put stuff on there just for tone and it's not actually compressing very much. It's just imparting the, like the tone of a specific can you, compressor. Can you give us, uh, remember an example of like what plugin might sort the, of impart like a tone? Fairchild sounds really great on guitars. The, um, the is Slate, that the, uh, like which, FG, which Fairchild? FG Mu. Um, I think it's the FG Mu. Um, or just like any, like the UAD, like Fairchild 660, 670s. Right. Okay. Um, like a lot of times I'll have those on the guitar bus, but it's, it's maybe compressing like a half a DB, a DB. Um, but it does like just the character of it sounds really good. Okay, cool. You know? All right. Well, let's back up to, um, bass next. What are some bass treatments that might, uh, happen in a mix that are very useful? How does the bass come to you? Is it, um, let's say it was a, an actual electric bass guitar not dealing with synths at this point yet. Um, what are you getting? Amp mics, DIs? Are you getting a bunch of stuff? Are you uh, have you learned that all you need is the DI because you're going to rebuild the whole thing anyway? Any any tricks or tips there? I think every every session is a little bit different. Like it, depending on the producer and and uh, 
but a lot of times I'll get both a DI and an amp mic. Um, sometimes it'll just be a DI. And then, you know, with bass, you just did like trying to get it, uh, so you can hear the mid range enough on like phones or just small speakers. Um, while also like keeping a, the low end intact. So sometimes that's like saturation or like harmonic distortion. Um, anything to just give it, uh, if it's, if it's required for the song, you know, if it like suits the suits, the record, like I love adding that kind of like mid range, like grit and growl. Um, when you're adding mid range grit and growl, what are the, some of the tools that you use for that? And do you have to, does it also sometimes compete with the low end when you're trying to just add the mid range? Anything we need to know about that? Um, so I've been using the, um, it's a UAD plugin. It's the VSM three. And it essentially is like, you can do second and third order harmonic distortion or saturation with this. And you can do like, you can blend the two, you can do them in parallel. Um, but it's a, it's really nice for adding like some, just some like saturation, some mid range on bass. Um, I'll use it in parallel on drums sometimes. And, uh, definitely just like, I'm always checking that it's not messing up the low end. Um, cause there are some plug, like I've tried Saturn and sometimes Saturn gets a little phasey. Um, or you just don't like the low end is gets a little weird with it. I don't know exactly what's going on, but just how do you I check? Trust my ears. What's a good? What's an easy, quick way to check? I just trust my ear. I don't. I don't have any. No, I mean, is there yeah. some we do on the screen? Do we do we bypass something? Oh, just like, well, if you hear more low end without that parallel chain, then it's probably messing something up. So that would be parallel chain means we've got a DI track, and then underneath it we've got. Um, do you copy the original bass and, and have it like a second DI track that has different plugins on it? Or do you just route the DI track so that it returns in two places in parallel? Sometimes I'll just copy the original, just, just copy the original track. Um, but if I have like effects on the DI track though, like I might just, I might just send it to a mono aux, you know, if there's already like EQ and stuff on it, like I'll just send that to an aux. And the aux would be like, uh, you you would you have two auxes? One is just like plain plain Jane bass. Sorry, Jane, plain Jane Sorry, bass. Jane. And then one is uh, like you know mid range growly bass where you're dialing in the um the what was it the VTM is that what it was? Uh, VSM VSM three VSM three. Um, is that no, how to normally it? it would just be the DI is still sending to the the bass submix at the bottom okay and then yeah. there's just a send on that track going to a like a bass parallel channel which is living right underneath which the bass like di right underneath it, but yeah. then that one is also going it's to the bass sub together at the bottom of the session. okay cool yeah. this this helps us picture it remember yeah. we're we're all audio here so we got oh, no dude. visual on the screen I know, it's tough um okay cool and then if you want to hear if it's uh screwing up your low end you're just muting and unmuting that parallel track mm -hmm. okay dig it um what else I want to ask about that? Um, and then I guess you're just listening to the low end. You can just hear if it sounds yeah. better or worse. Yeah. What else should I ask about bass? Any other cool things that uh, the rock stars need to know about treating a bass to yeah, sound better know. for a mix? Oh, uh, you, you mentioned the the little speakers and iPhones and stuff like that. Yeah. How do you know? I mean, you're 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 mixing on your uh, your your big Proac speakers. They're not yeah. that big. They're like NS10s, right? So. 
everybody should go check out this plugin. It's called Listen To. And it basically, you can just throw it on your mix bus or your main output of Pro Tools. And it transmits, um, the, it's just, you can stream the mix. So I use this all the time to like do mix tweaks with a client remotely or just, uh, or just listen on my own. So I'll just send the mix to my phone and I can stream it. I can go out in the car and listen or just listen on my earbuds or phone speaker. And or it's a send on the mix bus? It's just a, it's actually a plug-in. Just a plugin. So it's a plugin. Yeah. It just lives. I just keep it on the end of the mix bus chain. So Does that work uh, this, and everything? I don't know if you know the answer to this, but would that work on an HDX Pro Tool system as well? Sort of a, um, you know, where you can't use aggregate outputs and stuff like that? I think so because it isn't, uh, yeah, I don't think it's like an aggregate IO. It's thing. not an output, it's, it's a no, plugin. It's, it's just a plugin and it just, you, um, it just streams. So there's a link and then you just send the link to your, client or to your own to your phone or whatever and then you can pull it up and it just streams on through there like super cool kind of like nice cast is one i'd use well that's what i used to use i was using nice cast forever and then i think i updated my os and nice cast didn't work anymore yeah so it happens there's all those fun little yeah all right so you put that on there um and then there's a link uh one thing i remember about nice cast is it was quite a big delay between what you you know what's playing yeah. out of Pro Tools and when this you hear it on the phone. Better. It's a little bit. It's a little bit faster less than that. Latency on it. Okay, cool. So then you will literally turn off the speakers in the studio and just yeah. listen on the iPhone to mm-hmm. see how the bass is sitting. Yeah, totally. Right on. And listen in the car. I mean, you've just. I'm just so used to how those speakers sound in my car. Yeah. And you know how stuff should sound, like because you just listen to more. You listen there probably more than anywhere else. Yeah. Um. So you take the phone out the to the car, and, and then now the, the yeah, phone is is streaming. So I guess the the audio is coming from Pro Tools, and this plugin is coming over the internet to your phone. Is yeah. it like only locally on the Wi-Fi, or do you think it just uses the internet and comes to your phone? And like if your car is um, parked out in the parking lot, you're still going to hear it, right? Yeah, totally. You can use you can stream it over your over like your three G or whatever, or your or your network. So okay, it's either cool. or you can use if it's if you're on your own Wi-Fi, it might be a little bit faster just right. it's on the same network as the computer. But um, I mean, I've sent it out to clients like in other states and it works fine. Cool. Well, I'm yeah. excited. I'm going to have to try that out. Yeah. I've been using um, uh, audio hijack and airfoil. Oh, sweet. It's sort I've of a more complicated thing to stream it locally. Yeah. But it, but that one doesn't work going out to my car. Oh, okay. The only good thing about the one that I'm describing is it's it's not much of a delay, so it's 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 still a delay. But um, the delay thing is frustrating because then you then like as soon as you hear something, you're like you want to be able to like turn the bass off and on and hear the result really quickly so you can yeah. make some decisions. Sure. Um, but great tip, man. All right, we'll have to yeah. check out listen to. Um, now let's back up from the bass. And let's go to, well, but actually, before we do back up from the bass, do you have any advice for um, treating, you know, synth basses? And do they get the similar treatment to what you just described for a bass DI? Um, any tips about mixing and blending basses in a production? Anything like that? Um, I mean, I wish there was like a specific, that would just be so much easier. Like there's, this is just what you do. But honestly, every record feels to me feels different. And I, it, it's like, 
I don't use the same plugins on everything. I don't use the same kind of like processing on everything. It's really just like, what am I hearing and what tool can I use to like get that effect? Um, but that said, like synth bases sometimes just like distorting the crap out of them can sound crazy, you know, or just sending them to like a little, like a short verb. It just kind of depends. Like, uh, yeah. When do you put a high pass filter on a bass track, which is one of the most counterintuitive moves ever? When it's messing up with your, when it's kind of like screwing up your mix bus compression. Like if you high pass a bass a little bit, you can get your mix to like dance a little bit more. Oh, okay. Yeah. T talk a little bit more about that. Well, just you got um, frequencies below like 40 hertz that are just like affecting, you might not be hearing, but they're affecting your mix bus compression. And then you can kind of hear when you start to roll that, some of that low end, like rumble off, you just, it just comes alive a little bit more. It's really subtle, but like you can just get a little more headroom. It's like the mix, the mix comes forward and less to like the inaudible sub frequencies and more to like the actual, like usually kick and snare or the vocal. Okay, cool. Um, that low cut trick, is that useful on the drums as well? And, and, and programmed, um, drum machine kind of stuff. Um, it definitely can be like, depending on the frequency of your kick, um, it, it can definitely help to like roll off some of that low end. Um, usually, you know, it's, it's the balance of like trying to find the right spot for the kick to live. And then where is the bass relative to that? Yeah. Um, and I think it just kind of depends on what kind of music you're making. If you want a really subby low end, heavy, like bass guitar mix or synth bass mix or, if the kick is supposed to like kind of like control that range. Um, when in the mix process, are you reaching for these low cut filters and, and making these decisions about it? Is it closer towards the end of the mix when you've, when things are adding up and hitting the mix bus and now you're hearing that effect against the compressor or is that, are these decisions that you can make intelligently pretty early on when you're just mixing drum and bass together? I think you can you can definitely roll certain things off at in the initial phase of the mix. Like I I, I don't necessarily do a ton of like high pass stuff, but um, you know, as if I'm starting to like notice that the low end is too isn't clear enough or is like getting getting a little murky or muddy or something, I'll roll low end off the off the background vocals for sure. Maybe guitars too. Um, pro maybe lead vocal. Like I do, I love to keep at least like some punch in the, in the lead, like some chest in the lead vocal if I can. Right. Um, if it suits the, if it suits the record, you know, but I don't, I definitely don't cut as much as I think so. Like I've seen some sessions come in where they're cutting a lot of like low mid range on a vocal. And usually that sounds a little, it just is a little thin to my ears. Yeah. I think that low cuts are an amazing tool, but they can get used by default instead of used by necessity. You know? Yeah. Like I bring them in, like they come in with the template by default, but they're inactive and I'll just, I'll only make them active if it's, if I start to notice that there's like issues. Okay, cool. Well, let's back up then. And well, actually before we back up where and how do you make judgment calls about low end? Hmm. On your pro X in the car? Oh yeah. On the, like, Usually I'm, I'm mostly listening on the pro acts in my room and I have a, 
I have a sub and um, the low end is pretty accurate. You know, it's just like any like any home studio, like small room. It's like there's going to be issues with the low end. So I definitely um, get it feeling really good in there and then taking it out to the car, or listening on. Do you get up and move around the room in your control room to to judge the low end coming out of your speakers? Do you have one? Not a lot. Do you find that the mix I usually spot get is even good? more confused? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I try. I tend to just like stay in right in front of the desk and yeah. and just mix from there. Because um, I've definitely noticed that there's like big modes and big uh, big areas where bass is like way is so extremely pronounced. Right. And um, if I made judgment calls from there, it would it just confuses you really thin? You know. Yeah. All right, um, let's back up to the drums. Mm -hmm. What are some things that are part of a drum template that help make drums sound better? And I guess we're talking about an acoustic drum get at this point. Sure. Um, so usually with, uh, like with my mix template, I'll bring in a handful of like parallel, um, parallel compression channels and parallel uh, like saturation channels, distortion channels. Um, and then any kind of like ambient, like verbs and, uh, maybe some delays, but normally it's like a drum bus, a, a parallel, maybe two parallel channels and then, um, a verb. And those will just come in inactive and then I'll just kind of like pull them up and make them active as, as I feel like it's needed, you know? Um, when I hear you talk about bringing in all these different tracks and, you know, your sessions getting big, mm -hmm. how powerful of a computer do we need to be able to do this stuff? Did you, uh, go through an experience of running into, um, you know, a ceiling on what your computer could handle? Is this simpler than it, than it sounds on the surface? Is this like, nah, you can, you can get a lot of stuff into a mix. Um, it depends a lot on just the size of the session that comes in. Like if you're getting, um, if you're getting sessions with hundreds of tracks, which isn't, it's not uncommon at all. Um, but if they're all loaded with like five plugins, not uncommon, but almost always unwelcome. <laughs> yeah. I mean that it's just like, I, I feel like a lot of times it's just a matter of like not fully committing to a vision. That's where you start to get like way too many tracks like that. It's like, you know, three mics on a guitar amp and, Right, things that, that just could have be been like submixed. Yeah. 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 So is that part of your mix template process? Do you just automatically submix stuff and, and make it simpler for, you know, will, Sean, if, if you were assisting like him? If for I example? do hit a ceiling on something I'm mixing, I will like bounce stuff down or print. I'll just commit to things um, if, if needed. But uh, I, I, I didn't really do that too much for Sean because um, I think his rig, it just wasn't really an issue. Yeah. You know, when I worked with Jamie Tate, um, who very consistently makes great sounding mixes, I was yeah. struck by how quickly and how uh, almost with like a who cares attitude, um, he would just take something that we had that was like a bunch of tracks and just bounce it down to a stereo track and start from there. Yeah. You know, it's like right. when you're creating the, you're producing and creating, you can get so easily hung up in the 12 tracks that make up your string blend, you know? Yeah. And then, but he would just be like, play it, sounds good, bounce it down to yeah, stereo and I'll just mix great. from there. Perfect. And then it ended up sounding great, you yeah. know? 
So um, I, I think that's encouraging. It's an encouraging reminder to remember that uh, if it even sounds pretty close to good, simplify it and knock it, get it down to just a stereo track and start mixing from that instead, you know? Yeah, usually it's more inspiring too. If you, if there's just a more focused, more concise attempt at like conveying the song, conveying the record. Uh, if I'm mixing something like that, it's a little more inspired than yeah. dealing with, you know, three passes of strings that are like 12 channels each. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause that's how you get the strings to sound that way too. A lot of times <laughs> you have to keep layering and stacking stuff. Yeah. Yeah. This show is sponsored by Recording Studio Rockstars Academy. Are you ready to take your recording, mixing, and mastering to the next level and make your best record ever? Then visit the Academy to find the course that's right for you. Want to record killer drums in your home studio? Then check out Rockstars of Drums to learn how to record, edit, and mix pro-sounding drums with a professional Nashville session drummer in a Grammy-winning studio. Or if you are ready to start mastering your own records at home, then check out Rockstars of Mastering, where I walk you through exactly how I mastered my own record, Skadoosh, using nothing but plugins in PreSonus Studio One. These techniques would work for you in whichever DAW you are using right now. And if mixing is your focus, then check out my free course, Mix Master Bundle, where I show you how to mix using stock and free plugins in Pro Tools. Plus, you get a look at how I recorded everything in my studio and multi-track downloads to mix in your own studio and even include in your mixing portfolio if you want. Are you ready to make your best record ever? Then go to Mix Master Bundle bundle.com to get started for free now and look for the clickable link in the show notes of this episode. Um, okay. So let's, let's uh, go back to drums there. You've got these parallel compressions, parallel distortions or saturations, and then special drum effects. Um, talk about some compressors. Uh, what is, what does parallel drum compression look like as far as these things you're importing? What are some favorite and useful plugins that you should that are worth trying out for parallel compression? You know, where is the needle on the screen of gain reduction? Is it like going crazy? Is it a little bit? Is it uh, does it depend? Um, I so two of the two of the go tos for me right now, and this may change, and and it and it kind of like is always evolving. But the uh, the Chandler Zener plugin from UAD. Okay, I dig it. And then the um again that VSM three plugin. And the Zener and is a compressor or Zener it's is a, a compressor. Distortion. All right. Mm -hmm. And the VSM is that harmonic uh saturator. And that's UAD as well. That's UAD as well, yeah. So um you're using UAD. <laughs> yeah. Talk to us about your processing power to make this stuff happen with UAD. Do you need what cards do you use or what interface do you use that allows all this to happen? I just have a satellite eight core, um, and that seems to seems to do the job. I was rocking the four core for a while and starting to feel like, all right, this is a there's a little bit of a ceiling on how much I can process things, and I was just having to print too much. I don't have so, the yeah. UAD stuff yet, but I'm I'm probably gonna need or probably gonna want to get it just because so many yeah. people say so many great things about it. Yeah, but uh, you know, if you're gonna consider a satellite eight, that's couple thousand dollar investment or something like that is that is that ballpark or is it higher more than that 
The or ACOR satellite is probably around ballpark a thousand. Maybe? Okay, so that's all right. That's, I don't that's know not, exactly. That's a good d- question. Yeah, all right. I got it, mine. It's an investment, yeah, yeah, but it's, it's not. It's not out of reach. Yeah. Well, and then if you're when you start to have to get all those plugins, is when it becomes like all right because right, you got to buy them some all. serious money. Right. For this. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Well, I will encourage you, rock stars, to take a good close look at UAD. Um, universally, no pun intended, um, it gets recommended as the best sounding plugins out there. And I had UAD uh, uh, 1176 and LA2A as part of the TDM versions mm-hmm. on my older Pro Tools rig. They actually made them as TDM plugins before the UAD oh, cool. cards. And man, they just sounded so good. Yeah. They sounded so good. So definitely worth looking at. And um, I think it'll. I think those are one of those investments that if you do get into it, you're, you know, you're you're feeling pretty good about having spent the money on it too. Oh yeah. Um, and at the same time, while we're here, I'll give a shout out, of course, to Boz Digital Labs, who are making uh, Boz Millar, who's a sponsor on this episode, I believe, is um, you know, making really super cool sounding plugins, and they're they're a collection of really unusual cool ones like uh, Manic Compressor, which has the built-in parallel compression features, and you can really dial in and create a, a wide variety of sounds, which is pretty cool. Um, all right, so parallel compression, um, the Zener one, uh, do you keep that in stereo mode? Do you do you have, should we think about parallel compression as like a stereo match of what's going on with the just the drum mix itself? Or do you send different things to this parallel compression? Do you also use a mono compression for, um, parallel treatment on the drums a lot of times i'll do i'll do like a mono snare compression or snare crunch maybe it just um i've been experimenting lately with doing more like parallel saturation and distortion um the experimenting never stops no of course it's always it's always ongoing um and so, like, I'll blend that in with the parallel, with, like, the stereo parallel drum compression. Maybe there's just, like, a little more snare in this one or a little more kick, uh, just kind of depending on the tune. And so when you say uh, distortion or saturation or crunch, what, what are some plugins that help you arrive at that? Sometimes, uh, well, like, again, that VSM3, um, sometimes a, uh, like, a 1073-type clone, like the UAD 1073 with the preamp just cranked and then bring down the output fader. Yeah. That's um, got a great like distortion. A really nice crunch from that. Yeah. Um, sound toys, decapitator, uh, the little radiator plugin. Um, and will you have that many, um, possible variations in your template and you're trying no, them all not, or will you just usually, I don't just sort have, of intentionally pull up each plugin and explore for a minute. Yeah. I mean, there's not a ton of fat in the template. It's, it's like, this, the tracks are just there, and then there's a there's sort of like maybe the go-to plugin is on there, but I'll switch that out just depending on if it doesn't sound right for the tune, I'll just switch it out for something else, for that snare crunch channel or for the drum verb channel or whatever. Yeah, one of the things that I find useful is, of course, you know, if you're in Pro Tools, you have, is it 10 slots uh, for plugins on each channel? Eight. Or eight, yeah. So you can do, um, you can have an AUGS track, and then you can just disable, you could put like eight plugins on, but disable seven of them and sort of enable or disable the other ones as mm-hmm. you go. And I think that leaves all, that frees up your processing power. 
But what about um, delay compensation? How much of an issue is that for you? And do you sometimes run into a ceiling with what's going on in Pro Tools? Um, any thoughts or expl explanations about what delay compensation is and why it's important and latency and stuff? It usually it hasn't really been an issue. Like sometimes, sometimes I'll run out of, uh, you know, like sometimes there'll be a little latency on the mix bus. But if I'm just I'm just printing those tracks down, it's not really, it doesn't it doesn't really mess with the workflow. So normally, at least on my end, like Pro Tools kind of handles it. Okay, so you don't have to. Uh, I know I've got the delay. Um, DLY at the top of the screen, and sometimes that goes yeah. red because yeah. I, I get a little cray cray with my plugins sometimes. Yeah, it does. I, like I get that too sometimes, but it's not. But usually, it's just on the limit. It's on like the mix bus track. Right. Okay. So everything is still summed in time and properly, and then it's just the print is just like a little bit like latent. Um, are there any tips to looking at the screen or the mixer or you know the the latency reporting? and interpreting what you're seeing so that you know that the tracks are adding up properly and it's just the mix bus that's being latent? Um, well, normally it'll say, I think if you hover over that, that DLY, when it turns red, if you hover over, it'll say like, cannot, uh, something like can't compensate for whatever the track name is. So it'll say like, can't, on my end, it'll usually say like, can't compensate for mix bus. And that, uh, uh, and what does that mean? I know it's a tricky question. But. Uh, <laughs> I wish I knew, man. All right, just uh, I have too much, too many plugins on the mix bus. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. Right. All right. Okay. Cool. And sometimes well, plugins add late, like ozone. I think a lot, a lot of times with ozone, it's like you you get latency if with if you're using like certain settings with like the limiter or the maximizer. Right. Right. There are some yeah. high pro, uh, intense. Yeah. For me, it's Isotope RX. Yeah, I use that a lot on the, the, the podcast. And some of those processors are just, just take a, you know, tens of thousands of samples oh, delay yeah. and stuff like that. Um, very cool. All right. Uh, let's see. So BSM for the crunch and some of those other tools, parallel compression on the drums. Um, let's talk about drum reverbs and effects. What are useful reverbs for drums and what what sucks what what doesn't ever sound good you know what talk talk to us about adding effect sounds to drums so that it's like that sounds great as opposed to that sounds stupid yeah well i think with that it just is like has a lot to do with tempo and complexity of the drum part and the pattern and how like how quickly things are syncopated in the song like a big, huge reverb isn't necessarily going to work on a fast tune with a really complicated drum part. Um, but if you got like a ballad or a slower tune that's got some space, that can sound amazing, you know? Big, huge reverb equals a plate reverb or Maybe something like that? Or at like, you know, two, three seconds or something like that. Right, like where that. it's like, you hit, you yeah. hit like a tambourine and it goes... Yeah, exactly. Um, what about uh, um, room reverb sounds so like if you're if Rooms you're like these good. drums just need to sound rock and roll and powerful yeah what's what are some go-to settings in a re in reverb world that are worth at least you know beginning with i like the um i like the ocean way plug a lot there's another uad it's just modeled it's like 
convolution reverb of the um, measurement of the ocean. Yeah, around. some of the rooms, but it's Ocean Way out in LA. It's not Ocean Way Nashville, which Correct. is a giant reverberant church, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, okay, that cool. sounds really cool. Like putting that through some some compression can just like get it get it sounding crazy. You know? Yeah, is that one of those things that you uh, the rock stars should know about that like for the drum room or reverb to sound right, you almost always have to like hit a compressor after it. I, to get yeah, an exciting I do, sounding. Yeah. I do a lot of um, compression on drum rooms and drum overheads. Yeah. Um, what compressors are useful for that, for uh, compressing the room or compressing the overheads? The um, SSL compression sounds really good. The G-Bus compressor sounds great. Um, API 2500 sounds really good. Um I really like the SSL on drum overheads and then rooms just, if you really want to like slam some rooms like 1178 or just like two, uh, you know, two 1176s. Yeah. Um, do you, do you find the SSL compressor has a softening quality to it? It like kind of mellows out the harsh of, of overheads in room or is that a, it's not, not, not a yeah, way you think some, about it. Sometimes, uh, it can also like, it can also just like help you enhance the transient though too. I think with the right settings, it's like you get more punch. It brings out the spit of the yeah. attack of the drum. Yeah. I think of 1176s as being kind of, you know, able to add aggressive mid range to something, for example. Totally. And I might not want that on the cymbals. Right. You know? Yeah. Whereas the uh, um, SSL kind of controls it more or something. Yeah. You know? Maybe that's why that's nice, like on overheads and then like on rooms, they're farther back from the cymbals and you're hearing more of just like an overall picture of the kit. Yeah. And you can slam those through. All right. Um, let's quickly talk about kicks and snares and stuff that goes on the actual kick and snare channel. What are some useful um, go-to moves on the kick and the snare that you find yourself doing often? You know, things like gate, compression, EQ, yeah, whatever. Um. I don't really do too much compression on a kick. Um, I will, I'll just shape it with EQ and then, and then maybe like parallel compression if, if it's needed. Um, are there any EQ zones that are, that the rock stars should know about as far as shaping a kick? Yeah. I think like finding the right, finding where the fundamental like tone and pitch of the kick is and, you know, maybe like, bringing that out a little more, maybe tucking some low, some like help us out. Is that, is that one kilohertz? Uh, no, <laughs> you'd have some attack at one K. No, but Usually I mean, that, that was a, that like was a punch. trick question. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, where do we find fundamental frequencies for a kick? Those, maybe those like tones between 80 and and a hundred, or if it's a lower, if it's a bigger kick, maybe like you're down like 60 to 80. Okay. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's really yeah. helpful. And then, um, do you find yourself, removing certain frequency ranges of kicks consistently? Yeah, a lot of times um, taking out like 200, 250, um, just if it's sounding too, uh, too like muddy or right. Or that's, sort of the, that's sort of the thuddy boxy zone, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and then what about the attack of the beater on the drum? Where, where, what are some zones where you might want to add something to bring more uh, detail of the attack of the kick. Yeah, I mean, between like 1K and 4K, somewhere in there, there's usually some nice like click from the uh, from the beater. 
And is this, uh, if, if you're messing with the Q setting of your uh -huh. boost, do you, do you tend to want a narrow Q or a wide Q or just something in the middle? Um, I mean, it kind of just depends on the source. Like if it was, uh, if I'm cutting something, I might do a pretty narrow Q. Usually if I'm boosting, I'm boosting with a slightly wider Q. Okay. Um, yeah, it kind of just is all over the place. What about the high shelf? Is that a useful tool for a kick drum? The high shelf EQ, you know, 10K and above? Sure. I mean, I don't I don't tend to use that very much. If you have like some nice bleep, maybe there's some nice like snare rattle in there that you want to bring out. Okay, cool. It could be cool. I mean, like if there's like bleed from the drum, uh, like on some of the mics, like I don't, I don't typically gate a lot of, like I'll gate the toms maybe, but... All that like bleed and um, rattle and stuff usually sounds pretty good to me. Um, so sometimes I'll bring that out if I can. Um, if yeah, I guess space for it. If that was going like, to be one of my my questions was do do you sometimes need to gate the snare the drum kick rather? But it sounds like you're saying the opposite, which is like that stuff that's also in the kick mic is can be a really cool part. I mean, of your drum to me, sound. it has it is really dependent on tempo and the drum part and pattern and if there's space for that bleed to be to like sort of like breathe in the in the rest of the drum groove and if it sounds cool like i'll keep that stuff in there all right dig it um it can be helpful for like filling out the filling it out a little bit all right um any thoughts about snares about like what what are some things that you boost or cut some areas for a snare that snare close mic the top mic or whatever to get it to sound good and then maybe even the bottom mic, any thoughts about that? Yeah, I like the, um, I mean, I like the snare to have like some punch so I don't cut too much low end on it. Like usually I'll boost a little bit of wherever that, like maybe 180 or 160, 200, somewhere in there. Um, just to get it really like punching through the, uh, through the rest of the mix and then usually brightening it a little bit. I mean, it just kind of depends on how it was recorded. If there was a lot of EQ added on the way in, um, sometimes it's fine. Well, I mean, might as well not beat around the bush. We know a lot of the snare drums that are coming to you are SM57 on top of the snare, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I find that an SM57 universally is going to need some top-end boost. Yeah. I do boost a little bit at the recording stage. Um, I imagine if you don't, then you probably need to do that more of that in the mix. Yeah. But you can also, like, one of the other ways that I get that is through those parallel, like, through the crunch channels, you know, through, like, that Neve 1073. If you're slamming that, um, you're going to get a lot of high end on it. Right, right. So just finding the right blend of that um, is almost more fun to me than just, like, adding a high shelf to the snare, you know, and you just get more, like... More excitement, Yeah, too, you right? get more crunch and more more compressed sound from it. Um, how often do you find yourself going, damn those cymbals or damn that hi-hat, you know, where you're like trying to come up with a solution to control the hi-hat or control the cymbals on, on, um, at the mix stage? Um, I find that a lot with like the, like lines, like Jesse's band, like their stuff is the, the, um, like Bo is an amazing drummer. He's his parts are crazy and he's pretty capable of playing, I think whatever he wants to play. Um, and he just like, he does a lot of cymbal work 
And it's definitely tricky trying to get that to fit in with also like pretty like blasting guitars, like overdriven guitars and yeah, maybe synths sometimes. And um, yeah, usually those are, you, I'm just finding that you got to find the right balance of those with like, right, right. Yeah. Distorted Cause he's guitars. got, a, he's got like eight symbols up there or something. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. C- prog Pretty rock. Prog rock. Prog yeah. rock. Yeah. Like right. That stuff is. All right. Dig it. Um, let's talk about some of your, uh, some of these amazing records you're working on. Um, Lines in the sky, Alec Bailey, um, you know, talk to us about some of these projects that you're doing now that you're really excited about. Yeah. So, um, I've been over the last like six or seven months, um, been working a lot with this Arctic Al- artist, Alec Bailey. Um, and that's been cool. We're writing together, doing a lot of like, um, doing a lot of his production. Um, great sounding stuff too. And rock stars, a reminder, of course, I've got links to this in the show notes and there's a YouTube playlist where you can go click through and listen to Nick's work with Alec Bailey and, and others, Sam Smith included. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So what are you guys doing with that? So you've been co-writing. There was one track, uh, Grip, that you said you did a, specifically a co-write on mm-hmm. um, that sounded really great. Um, Thanks, talk, talk about that co-writing process. What does that mean to be producing engineering and also have a co-write on something? So that one was, um, that was me, Alec, um, another producer, songwriter, guy named Johnny Dibb, and then a top line writer named Jay Hart. And, um, it was just the four of us. I think Johnny had, uh, an idea for like a groove and kind of like chord progression. Um, so we kind of like laid the foundation on that. And while Johnny and I were sort of like, um, adding, doing like building a track, basically, I think Jay Hart and Alec were sort of like on the couch vibing, thinking about lyrics and melodies and just kind of like mumbling stuff and sort of just like singing some little bits and pieces and sort of like coming up with, uh, coming up with like a chorus idea. Um, and then, you know, we kind of built it out from there. We had like a sort of like a vibe in Pro Tools and then they had some, some, some nice like melodies and lyric ideas. And are you picking up a guitar and having a guitar in hand a lot when you're doing stuff like yeah, this? Yeah. I think a lot like doing guitar, like putting, um, sitting in front of Ableton, maybe just like playing guitar in the room. Playing an acoustic or an electric? Usually an electric. <clears throat> do you like to have an amp just in the control room so that you can do that while you're Yeah, composing? we have, um, we've got an amp in the control room and then we have, uh, we have also like a, another amp out in the booth. So we've got like a control room, um, just like kind of like drum room slash live room mm-hmm. and then a vocal booth, which... We almost never use for vocals. We just use for guitar amps. Yeah, just and, isolate and the like, amp. Yeah, we had a Leslie cab in there for a while. Um, very cool. Well, so there was one of the effects in that track uh, in Grip where you kind of had an old-time filtered background vocal on the word every time in the choruses. Yeah. Talk to us about getting uh, creating that effect and what, what was that all about for you? Yeah, I think this, there's some cool vocal effects on that. Some of it, some of the stuff, like the throws on the lead vocal are the, um, this awesome plugin, uh, Valhalla Frequency Echo. Okay, cool. Which is, uh, maybe it's just Freak Echo. And that is essentially delays that are sh- like shifted down um, or up. Like you can pitch shift these delays up and down and... Uh, 
and feed it back into itself. So you just get these crazy trails that are like shifting. Yeah, just explain time. what a throw is. Um, so like maybe there's a, a vocal phrase and you just want one word or one, one part of the phrase to like go to a big reverb or a delay. So you could just create a return track, um, put a delay or a reverb on there. And then just on the send on the actual vocal, just ride up that fader for that, for that send on that word, you know? Um, and then otherwise that return track is just open and, and hitting the mix. It just doesn't have anything going into it the whole time. That's usually how I re treat returns. I'll keep them at zero and then send, um, just ride the, the, um, send yeah. going to it. I guess in some cases with plugins, um, in a lot of them, the plugin is probably very clean sound if there's nothing going into it. But in some cases, when you have vintage sort of tape emulating, distortion emulating mm -hmm. stuff, yeah, you just need to be aware, rock stars, that sometimes they're, that's like creating noise and other things that get amplified by the time it hits the mix bus. Yeah, and and so you may actually process, want to mute all it. that stuff is being you know that You lot. know that those first times you're like, you get a mix slam and you're like, awesome. And then you go to, I, I call it doing heads and tails, like the beginning... You're like, you got to balance. Now it's like, go to the front, make sure that the start of the song is right. Go to the end, make sure that everything kind of finishes out right. And you go to the start and you're listening, you turn up your speakers and you're like, oh my God, that's like a crazy amount of hum or yeah. noise or whatever. Right. And you discover it's just some plugin that's like, you know, deep in your mix template mm -hmm. that is just idling there and creating all kinds of ridiculousness. Of yeah. Um, and a lot of those open up with the, you know, like you pull up the plugin and it just had the noise is just kind of like on, you right? Know? And so you can just know, turn it off or something. Why they all have that? Default I think it's to that. well. I think it's emulating old gear, and yeah. then I think some, you know, in the same way that you have dither added to to uh, digital stuff, yeah. maybe there's an argument that some of the sound of those old sure. plugins is the is the noise included or something, mm -hmm. but. You sometimes you don't discover it until you're printing the mix. Hopefully you discover yeah. it before you go to mastering. Right. <laughs> and then somebody's like, um, can you reprint that mix and mute that stupid thing at the beginning? Yeah. And it's waiting for the first chorus anyway. Right. Um, okay, cool. So uh, what about working with, um, you know, some of these other artists that you work with, like Sam Smith, Megan Trainer, Cam, do you have any stories yeah. you want to share around those projects as well? Sure. I mean, the Sam, the Sam stuff was really cool. Like that was, um, that was really fun. He came to Nashville and he was writing, um, he was in town for about a week writing with Tyler. And, um, at the time I had kind of just started working with Tyler. I think I'd worked with him for a couple months. And you're working with Tyler still now? Yeah. Yep. Um, I think we've known each other about two and a half who, years Who now. is Tyler? If you want to introduce the rock Yeah. Tyler, Tyler is a songwriter, producer, um, he sort of got his start working under Jeff Basker, um, you know, really great producer out in LA. He's worked on like Kanye and all kinds of crazy stuff. Nice. Um, so Tyler got his start working with Jeff and, um, he, uh, he, I think he lived with Cam. Uh, I think they were roommates at one time and, um, they started writing songs together and, uh, he started like to develop her project and, um, they, you know, Jeff, I think gotten, Jeff heard some of it and wanted to get involved. And, um, they put out the album and burning house became a huge hit for cam. 
and um yeah tyler's tyler's awesome like he's a huge mentor and inspiration to me right on right um on. so anyway he brought me on board to help out with the second cam album which we are uh currently in the process of kind of like tying up and um yeah through through working with tyler i've had the opportunity to work with sam and megan and um yeah just a lot of cool artists well i got a couple of questions related to that so yeah. uh sam smith um i know there's a real use of like uh wonderful singing but also like big vocals and you even described gang vocals and then I heard more of that, I think, on the Alec Bailey tracks. Mm -hmm. And so I got the impression that you learned a lot about singing, uh, recording groups of people singing and how to incorporate that in your productions. Um, tell us what, you, what you've learned about, you know, how to record, you know, a big chorus joining in on a track or gang vocals. What do those mean? Um, how have you used that and incorporated that in Alec Bailey's production as well yeah i mean actually on the sam stuff we didn't i didn't do any kind of there's no gang vocals on um there might be some backgrounds on on one last song so we did tyler wrote um or co-wrote two of the songs on uh the thrill of it all um one last song and palace and palace was really cool because it was kind of completed in a day like they wrote the song um cam was also a co-writer on that and then I came in after the song was written that night and just to record the, like a demo of it. And we did this, everybody in the control room, uh, Cam, uh, Cam playing guitar um, through an amp in the corner of the control room. And then Sam is just on this vocal, like a handheld vocal mic. Um, Tyler played piano and no headphones, no click track. Uh, I think they did like four takes of it maybe. And we just picked the, I think we took maybe the third or fourth take. And, um, the only overdub I think was like Moog bass, just added like some synth bass on it and, um, printed a bounce. I think he lived with it for a couple of weeks and then was just like, yeah, I'm going to send this to mix. That's cool. So, was, um, Sam Smith's vocal was just recorded with a handheld mic. Yeah. Uh, do you remember what like mic he used? It was like a Sennheiser, uh, just some, nothing, nothing not, crazy. Not a 421, no. something else. No. Um, cool, man. What about, uh, what do you remember about, you know, doing the right vocal mic pre or EQ or compression or anything like that for that? Well, that stuff is, that's what was so wild to me was that it was like the engineering on it isn't like, it's, it's kind of crazy. There's bleed in the vocal, like there's guitar in the vocal mic, there's vocal and everything is like all bleeding together. But, um, I mean, I'm sure that he tried, that he like went, when he was back in London was like messing around with the song, maybe tried to beat it, maybe tried to re-record some things, but there was just like a vibe in terms of the performance yeah. and the execution of the, uh, the vision of the song. Um, I think we've really like captured that and it wasn't like technically engineered perfectly, but it was just like, all right, we just, we got this. It was in the moment. It was like right after the song was written. Sounds um, like the perfection of the engineering was not letting the engineering get in the way of the performance. A hundred percent. Yeah. Just, just pressing record yeah, and capturing there to capture what was already happening yeah. in the room, you know? Well, and obviously you didn't screw it up. Cause it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what are some other things that you learned about, uh, you know, if you've recorded, um, 
Sam's voice, Megan Trainor, Harry, Cam, um, male and female vocals. Mm -hmm. What are things you've learned about recording a male voice and a female voice? You know, have you sometimes found that, you know, a mic over here tends to work better for a female voice, but not for the male or vice versa? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, I'm still kind of like learning that and it's different on different, the, the complexity of recording a voice is, is pretty crazy. Like, you know, even Alec on any given day sounds better on this mic and then maybe he comes in the next day and his voice is just like a slightly different, um, maybe he's got like some congestion or something and it doesn't sound right on that same mic that just the other day sounded perfect. So it's a lot of like experimenting, kind of like trying to find the right, um, you know, just the right fit for that voice. I think Cam, uh, Cam sounds so good. She has such a great voice. It's pretty, it's difficult to record though, just because like her higher range and her higher register, a lot of mics just don't sound, don't pick it up very well, or it starts to sound really harsh, um, or really like abrasive. And that's just how the, like her voice doesn't sound like that in the room. It's just how that mic is like not really handling those frequencies. Yeah. Very yeah. Well. I've run into that kind of stuff. So my next question for you is what have you learned about like methods for making sure you're picking the right mic as quickly as possible? You know, if you're not picking it quickly as possible, what, what's the, uh, what's the downside of not having the right mic? And then all of a sudden it starts yeah. not sounding so good in the upper range or whatever. Well, I think, um, one nice thing is I don't have a ton of choice. Like, you know, the studio where we're doing most of this stuff, it's like, we've got a handful of, of options. We've got a, like a 251, a U87. Um, I have this, this mic that I just got. It's a, it's like a U47 FET clone. It's made by Lawton. I think it's called a Clarion and it's a really great mic. It sounds awesome. I use it all the time. Uh, like kick drum, it's great, like kick out mic. Nice. But also awesome vocal mic. And Does it have the um, pad features that a Neumann FET 47 has? It has um, a plus 10, zero, and a minus 10 okay. switch. So a it's, plus 10, so you can gain yeah, it up you can gain it up a little bit more and then bring your, your preamp down. Yeah. Um, uh, not to digress, but... Simon and Greg record the world. Simon and Greg were on the podcast a little while ago, and they were all about taking the Lawton mics with them to go do yeah. field recording all over the world, which is nice. really cool. That's awesome. Um, awesome. So, you know, so if you narrow it down to like three choices, then I guess you're just figuring out which one of those quicker. are going to work. Yeah. Um, well, we have done, you know, we've, we've recorded her like over at Sound Emporium, where of course there's tons of options and, um, and Blackbird where they have like every mic imaginable. So. I know. Um, if you tried them all, you'd still be at Blackbird yeah, now. Yeah, still be that. there. <laughs> but the uh, I really like the M forty nine on on Cam, uh, especially if she's doing like softer stuff. If she starts to really belt and and like sing at the top of her range, it gets a little bit tricky to find the right mic for it. But yeah, I find that um, I'm always surprised how useful a mic is with a pad. Like you know, when somebody's singing loudly. Um, you know, for example, the, uh, the Roswell Colaris that I have here, turn mm -hmm. on that 10 dB pad and all of a sudden those loud notes don't sound harsh and they don't, yeah. you know, kind of saturate the input of the, the, uh, mic pre. Right. 
Because sometimes you're using, you know, because you have one available to you, you're using kind of a cool Neve or mm-hmm. you know, I have these Calrec mic pre's. Um, but but when you push the input, I mean, they, they're distorting a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And that's what can sound cool for some stuff. But yeah. on other vocals, you know, really powerful singers, it cannot sound, you're like, uh-oh. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's, well, that's what I learned from Joe uh, Baldridge. Like, he just taught me to never really be afraid of clipping a, clipping a pre, you know? Right, right. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. I find that the don't be afraid of clipping a pre works best for, um, you know, working with the sounds that you really need to add a lot of excitement to. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or they work great for rock and roll. Yeah. But when you have the chance to record somebody who's just a truly powerful singer yeah, who could be doing, up on a stage, right, right. then all of a sudden I'm like, shit, I need to come up with some new ways to think yeah. about this stuff. I, right. Like I need to be like my, my, uh, my super secret mix recording trick is to be very cautious, you know, to mm-hmm. like make sure there's a lot of pads and the gains turn way down and I've yeah. got tons and tons of headroom. Totally. Cause you're going to need it. Uh, you know, better to compress it after the fact. Yeah. Um, very cool. All right. Well, let's jump in. We got to, we're going to close up here, but let's jump into the jam session and blast our way out with the final questions let's here. Let's do it, man. Um, when you started out and in, in recording and doing this stuff, what do you feel like was holding you back? Um, resources, studio time. Like when I was getting my, when I was getting started, like learning this stuff, um, it was back in Kalamazoo and, uh, there was, I was trained as I, you know, like I learned as much as I could just online resources and just with my own, like the modest little setup that I had at the time. Um, but you know, I think there's, I think there's a couple pretty legit studios in Kalamazoo now, but when I was living there, there was like maybe one studio and that guy was doing, he was like teaching guitar lessons on the side. So he wasn't looking to like bring on an intern or like hire an assistant. Right. So I didn't really have anywhere to learn beyond what I was able to teach myself, you know, so the solution for you was going to school and coming to to Nashville and and learning from people like Joe and uh, Eric Tarr and, and you, like I had a lot of great mentors along the way. I'm glad I wasn't one of the things that was holding you back. (laughs) Yeah. Lidge was holding me back. Man, Lidge, but then I got out of there. Um, okay, how about some of the best advice you remember receiving? Man, I wish I had just like a book of quotes from Baldridge. Um, He's got some good he ones. He's just really full of some of the some of the best advice, and he just like drops drops knowledge left and right. But I do remember one like one concept that one concept that he. Uh, that he tried to impart was that like this idea and it's like a whole, I, th- I think it's like a whole business, like uh, marketing sort of strategy. That's, that's more like fully formed than I'll be able to articulate here, but um, it's called like the blue ocean strategy. And it's basically what I took my takeaway from it was like um, being able to view the market, not as like a place of competition and scarcity and Flipping that and viewing it more as like a place of opportunity and creative potential. So in other words, like finding where you fit in and what, and identifying your strengths and like what you do differently than these other people. Cause if you're just in direct competition, there's just so much, like it's, it's kind of crazy. So like, it also just changes how you, like, I think if you view, um, 
if you view everything as like competition and scarcity, it's going to be a lot more difficult. Yeah. If you just flip your attitude. Um, so, yeah, well, I think one of the encouraging starting points for all of us is to just remember that the one thing you don't even, you hardly have to even try at to differentiate yourself is to just remember that you're unique, you know? Yeah. Like you, the individual right. are different from everybody else. And trust your ears because it's like, you know, you're going to have a different way of perceiving things and, and just stay true to that. Yeah. So let yourself come through whatever you're working on, you know? Yeah. All right. Dig it. Um, uh, any other recording tips, hacks or secret sauce you want to share with the rock stars? That's something they could use on their next session today. Man, my, I mean, this isn't necessarily a, a hack, but I just think like something that I'm really trying to do more like these days is, is just bring other people around, like hiring other talented people. Um, and that's probably obvious to a lot of people, but for me, it's like, I've done so much just on my own, like by myself, in my own studio. Um, I did, you know, I did do the band thing for a long time. Um, but I was always, uh, even, even then I was always like making my own stuff on the side or just doing my own thing. And, um, I've just learned that like collaborating and, and like getting other people to like come and play on stuff is really fun. Yeah, it is. And man. it's sound in the musicality, like, so I can, I can sort of like hack my way through like a lot of things like piano and bass and whatever. But, um, there's, there's amazing players here in Nashville and, uh, I think the process of like bringing some of those people in has, has brought things to like an, another level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so now uh, you've already shared a lot of uh, hardware and software tools. Sure. Uh, stop me if there's anything else you want to add to it. Otherwise I will jump forward. Um, and I feel like um, Joe's quote is a good answer for the business side of things, but if there's anything else you want to add to, you know, any advice for doing this for more than just a hobby, you got any resources or tips for the rock stars about, you know, making sure that you got your business in action? Yeah. I mean, there's, um, the, I do pretty much all of my business accounting, um, bookkeeping, invoicing, everything is just through a uh, software called zero, similar to QuickBooks, same okay. kind of idea. Um, it's just like an online bookkeeping software. Um, I use an app called Everlance to track like miles, like dry, like, you know, gas miles and stuff, but everything else just goes through zero. And, um, I do all my like expenses in that. And it just makes it pretty, it's pretty streamlined as far as like comes to tax time and putting all that stuff together. All right. Dig it. Dig it. Yeah. Um, how about uh, any tips for the organizational side of stuff? Anything that'll help us keep our shit together? Um, I mean, file management stuff is like, is pretty, pretty legit. Like carbon copy cloner I use a lot. Um, I use Dropbox constantly. Is carbon um, copy cloner your backup strategy for sessions? It is how I create, I use carbon copy cloner to make, um, OS backups make like a clone of the operating system. So if something happens on the internal drive is corrupted or that drive fails or something, I always have a, I can always still boot, um, my, maybe break OS. that down for us. Talk about that process of doing that. Cause I have, I've heard about that many times. I haven't done it yet. So 
Yeah. Um, I have well, a dedicated I, yeah. system drive in my computer. Mm -hmm. What do, what's, what's the first thing I do to make a carbon copy cloner of it? If you want to make a clone, you just need a, you know, you need a spare drive. And then... Can it just be like a, you know, a USB drive from OWC or just go to the store and go pick one up or something? Yeah. Yeah. The, anything should work that's got enough, like, storage space on it. If it's, like, as big as your internal system drive. Um, and then uh, Carbon Copy Cloner just makes, it, you know, makes a bootable clone of your operating system. So that means that if my system drive just one day is like, the computer's not working and I got to yeah, work today. Right. I can plug in that other drive into the USB port. Yeah. Start you up. You should be able to boot from the that. computer. Yeah. Do you think that you can, uh, and have you, have you had to try it out yet? Have you had to use it? No. I mean, I have, I, I have tested it like once just to make sure that I was able to boot from that drive. Um, but I'm sure that there are some, you know, licenses might get a little bit weird. Right, yeah. yeah. You, like, hopefully you can open up your yeah. your Pro Tools and get all your plugins. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I guess we'll just have to find out whether yeah. or not that's that's included in that. Right. But being able to just boot your system and, and get back to work or, or at least rescue stuff. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty critical. I've been using Time Machine, so I have a dedicated Time Machine drive right. in my Mac. Yeah. Um, and that's helpful. But to reinstall a time machine um, restore of something is very time consuming. It takes yeah, like, and you, you know, you're going to gonna still lose a day. Right. You still have to have like a new, you have to have an OS drive anyway for that, right? Like uh, no, you can, you can boot right up into time machine and oh, then okay. it'll restore. Gotcha. But it's like you would have to sort of blast over your system drive or pop a new drive in, restore yeah. it to that. And then it's like, it takes you know, many, many, many hours to restore everything onto that drive. Yeah. And then you probably, you have to run into those licensing issues again, I think, right. I think. Yeah. Problem with licensing stuff is you never quite know until you're there. Yeah. <laughs> Unless it's, you I test mean, it's it show up and you're just, you gotta just find the right workaround for it or whatever. All right, let's jump to the final question. This one is uh, hypothetical. We're going to take the way back studio machine. You go back, find young Nick. Rocking his Kalamazoo, rocking his Kalamazoo guitar through his Kalamazoo amp in Kalamazoo, Michigan. <laughs> you say, "Oh, Nick, listen, dude. I know you want to be a rock star of the studio yourself. Here's the single most important thing you need to know to be a rock star. <laughs> what would you go back and tell yourself?" Um, well, I don't know if it's the single most important thing, but I, I think like right now, I'm just encountering a lot of sessions. Um, co-writes and, and production stuff where it's like, all right, man, I really wish I knew could like just do this part on piano. And it's like, I can figure it out. Like given enough time, I can kind of get it. But so I think like if I could give myself advice, it'd be like, do the guitar thing, but also learn piano. Cause yeah, it's going to go back come and in, take those piano lessons. Yeah. It's going to come in handy later. It'll make know? mom happy too. Yeah. So I'm kind of like trying to woodshed now and, and really kind of like hone that a little bit more. Yeah, I should probably do more of that. I do have a really nice piano just sitting here yeah, wanting me to play it. Beautiful piano. <laughs> All right, dude. Thanks so much for being on Recording Studio Rockstars with us. Let the Rockstars know how they can find Mr. Nick Lobel, not Lobel. Yeah, uh, online. On, um, I'm on Instagram, just Nick Lobel, L-O-B-E-L. And uh, yeah. Is Instagram like the place to be now? I'm on Instagram a lot. I don't, I'm not like... Uh, I could probably do more um, just with like a website or, but I don't really use Facebook very much. 
mainly just living on Instagram. Nice. Yeah. Um, so if somebody needs a, a killer production yeah. mix or, um, you know, got questions, they just find you on Instagram. Yeah. Hit me up. All right. Dig it. Well, dude, thanks for being here, man. Great dude, to hang out with you me. again. Thanks, thanks for back. taking out, uh, you know, two hours out of your day to come of course. teach us all that awesome stuff about mix temp <laughs> mix, mixing and mixed templates. Yeah, man. Super cool stuff. My pleasure. All right, dude. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, then please share this episode with your friends on social media and leave a rating and review on iTunes to help the podcast reach more rock stars like yourself. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to rsrockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. Also, remember to hit the subscribe button to keep up with these weekly episodes. And if you're ready to make your best record ever, then head over to Recording Studio Rockstars Academy, where you can start with my free mixing course at mixmasterbundle.com. Look for the link in the show notes. And if you want more free content from Recording Studio Rockstars, all you have to do is go to rsrockstars.com slash email. Again, that's rsrockstars.com slash email to enter your name and email, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, podcast updates, and even free gear giveaways for your studio, all totally free. Thanks for listening, and thanks for being a rock star. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music.